Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and why Aristotle is overrated and Porphyry underrated. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. For many of you, Holden Karnofsky won't need any introduction, because he's a, or maybe even the, driving force behind GiveWell and Open Philanthropy. He was also the guest on the episode right before this one, because this is the second half of a recent conversation that we had. The first half was about why Holden thinks there's a surprisingly strong case that we may be living in the most important century in the history of humanity, and perhaps even the universe itself. We split this episode in such a way that you don't really have to listen to part one before listening to this uh, part two, though you can go back and start with that one if you like. Holden's mission professionally is to positively shape the long-term trajectory of humanity. And after 10 years trying to figure out how to do the most good through philanthropic grants, he has a lot of thoughts on how that can and can't actually be done. To that end, he recently wrote an article titled My Current Impressions on Career Choice for Long-Termists. Career Choice for Long-Termists? That kind of sounds like our gig. And perhaps unsurprisingly, Holden's advice and our advice are similar in a lot of ways. But Holden does prefer a fairly different emphasis or framing of career choice, and we wanted to make sure that you all knew about this alternative perspective from our own. After talking about that, we discussed the overall state of long-termism as a set of ideas that are trying to move the world in the right direction. In particular, we talk about the need to find projects that are both actually helpful and also able to absorb hundreds of millions or, or even billions of dollars. Holden also explains why he's pessimistic about our chances of finding a so-called cause X, that is, a new problem that would be much more effective to work on than anything the effective altruism research community is already aware of. Then, the final section is the most fun and uh, general interest, because we cover questions from the audience, as well as a bunch of random topics that Holden has been writing about uh, in recent years. Those include my personal favorite from this episode, which is a discussion of which historical events deserve much more attention than they currently get, but also has the world really gotten better over the last few thousand years? What can and can't we learn about how the world works from our experience with COVID-19? What things Holden has gotten wrong recently? And a bunch more besides that. As I mentioned last time, Holden works at Open Philanthropy, which is 80,000 Hours' largest funder. And if you'd like to share any feedback on this or any other episode, our email is podcast at 80,000hours.org. All right, without any further ado, here's Holden Karnofsky. All right, let's push on and talk about another thing that you wrote recently, which is, uh, the title is My Current Impressions on Career Choice for Long-Termists, where I guess you're trying to bring together a bunch of experience you've had over the last 14 years, I suppose, uh, thinking about how to have a large impact. And then in more recent years, thinking especially about the most important issues for for long-termists and seeing the careers of people around you, how they've gone well and how they've gone badly. What are some kind of key high-level points that you that you make in the blog post? Yeah, I mean, probably the biggest key high-level point is just a different framework for career choice than I think effective altruists normally talk about. And it's especially focused on early career people who don't really know what they're good at yet, don't really know what they're about yet. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of trying to address this question. Well, I'm I'm a long-termist. Let's just simplify and say, I want to help with the most important century. I believe the hypothesis. I want to help. You know, I'm really early in my career. What do I do? And I think the normal answer is kind of like, you should find a way to get a job that is going to set you up to be in this place in 20 years or, you know, in, in this kind of job in 20 years, or it's, you should get a job that is working on this cause or, you know, the cause of AI. And if you can't do that, then the cause of bio risk. And if you can't do that, then the cause of EA community building or whatever, it's not necessarily in that order, but, and I, and I have a, you know, a bit of an issue with that kind of advice. I think it's good advice. I, I think different lenses are good. So, you know, with career choice, I think you, you want to just consider several frameworks. I'm not trying to say one is one is the only one one should use. But I think a problem with that kind of advice is it's like it often is 
hard to process and hard to take actions based on and hard to get reliable signal about whether you're making the right choices. So a lot of times it's like, well, I would I would love to work at an EA organization making plans about the most important century, but there aren't any jobs like that that I was offered. Now what? And it just like now you have to start making guesses that if I go into this job, it'll lead there. That stuff is very hard to predict. It's very hard to predict what kind of job you're going to end up in or what kind of thing is going to work out, what kind of cause you're going to. People will switch causes during their career all the time. And so I just think it's a thing that you can do at that early career stage that is more predictive is you can ask, what aptitude can I build and become really good at? And that aptitude is going to stick with me throughout my career, no matter what cause I go into. And it's going to be something that I'm building every year, even if I switch causes, even if I switch worldviews, even if things go differently than I thought, even if I this job doesn't work out, I'm building this aptitude. What are a few of the specific aptitudes that you, that you kind of d- describe as a, a, an alternative way of framing what you're trying to achieve early career? Yeah, so there's a there's a cluster of aptitudes called organization, running, building, and boosting. And that includes things like doing management of people and helping organizations, you know, kind of set their goals, hit their targets. It can include operations jobs. It can include business operations jobs. It can include sort of if you stretch it a little bit like communications jobs, a lot of things. And it's like, you know, if you if you come into an organization and your thing is you're kind of a project manager who keeps people on track and you're a good personnel manager, that's an aptitude you're building. And that aptitude is going to stay with you. If you're doing that at a tech company, but you're really good at it and you get better at it. And then you go later to an AI lab, you know, you're still going to be good at it. And that's going to be one of the skills that you bring to the AI lab. And that's a case where you were able to build something useful without having immediately a job in the cause you wanted to be working in that then did transfer. So that's an example of an aptitude. I talk about various research aptitudes where you try to, you know, digest hard problems. I talk about a communications aptitude where you try to communicate important ideas to big audiences. You know, I go, I go into a bunch of different things. Yeah. So I guess, 80,000 hours over the years has talked quite a lot about career capital, which we're kind of, we define very broadly as anything that puts you in a better position to get a, to get a job that, that has impact in the, in the future. But it obviously includes things like skills, things like the people you know, the credibility you have, even just like having money in the bank so that you can potentially change a job without having to stress too much. Is this kind of a, a similar concept to building career capital early career or, or does, does it maybe have a different emphasis? Well, I mean, if you build an aptitude, then you're building career capital. An aptitude is a kind of career capital. I think the thing that I'm emphasizing in the post is that when you're at this early stage in your career and you're looking for a helpful question to ask, you're looking for a, you know, do I want to do A, B, or C? And when A, B, and C are different causes, I think that doesn't always have very clear or reliable implications for like what that means for what kind of job you're working and how you know if you're on track. Whereas if A, B, and C are like being a project manager, being a researcher, being a kind of communicator, then it's like, well, if I want to do this, then I should take this kind of job. I can almost certainly find some kind of job like that. And then here's how I'll know if I'm getting better at it. And then if I switch, then I'll do that kind of job. And that's all. So just like, it's a question you can ask that which aptitude, which kind of career capital, which aptitude do I want to build? And you can ask the question, you can take a guess, you can probably try out the guess, and you could probably get information on whether the guess is a good guess. And you could do all that, I think, with higher likelihood earlier in your career in a reliable way versus trying to, you know, trying to gather information on what cause should I be in, which can be done differently. But you don't always necessarily learn a lot about that from your day to day work in your job. Yeah. Yeah, just just to complete the list of aptitudes that you mentioned, I think the, the, the last few ones were software and engineering aptitude, like quite a transferable skill. Then there was information security, so it's like computer security, helping people keep secrets. I guess that one's beginning to approach a little bit, a little bit like a like a job or career. And then there's academia, so that's like a, a broad class of a broad class of roles. 
Yeah, some of them are broad classes of aptitudes that have a bunch of stuff in common. Like, you know, a lot of the point of the post was to be like, how do I take my guess at what I could be great at? And how do I like start learning whether it was a good guest and start changing my mind about it, which I think is often a better framework to be learning than some of these other frameworks. And then I think another aptitude is that I just skipped over, but it's political and bureaucratic aptitude. So mm-hmm. like, you know, if you're in the government and you're kind of climbing through the ranks, I mean, that's a thing that you can be good at or bad at. You can learn if you're good or bad at it. And if you're good at it, you're going to be good at it. And if you change your mind about what cause you want to work on, you're still going to have those skills and they're going to help you get into whatever cause you wanted. I also talk about entrepreneur. I talk about community building aptitudes, like, you know, trying to help people discover important ideas and form a community around them. That's a thing that you can kind of, you can try it out. You can see if you're good at it. If you're good at it, you're going to keep getting better at it, et cetera. So I maybe find this distinction between the aptitude first and, and career path first thing pretty blurry at a time. So if, sure. you're, if you're trying to develop the organization building, running and boosting aptitude and you go into a, you know, a project management role and then you're like developing project management and maybe the, the measure of success in that is like, do other people think that you're really flourishing and, and, and killing it in that job? So from one point of view, that's kind of aptitude building. I guess it, it also does, it also seems quite a bit, quite close to almost a career path or at least like the beginnings of a, of a career in a particular kind of role. Is, is there any way of like, sharpening the distinction in, in my mind and listeners' minds? Yeah, I mean, it's somewhat of a fuzzy distinction. Some of the aptitudes I list basically just are paths, like academia. But I think, you know, a career path, it tends to be based around kind of a particular endpoint. And a lot of times that endpoint is sometimes cause-specific or even organization-specific. So it'll it'll say, you know, I want to work at an organization like this, working on a problem like that in this kind of role. And it's just like, it's a very specific target to be aiming for. And I think most people are just wrong about where their career is going to be in 10 years. Like their best guess is just wrong. I mean, it depends a little bit. There are some career paths where you really, they're very well-defined. They're scaffolded. You have to get on them early. It's people give you a lot of help figuring out how you're progressing. So the distinction kind of dissolves there. But I think there's other careers where it's very hard to tell where you're going to end up, but it's very tractable to tell whether you're good at the kind of thing you're doing and figure that'll land you somewhere good. And if it doesn't land you in direct work, it'll land you somewhere good anyway, because there's things you can do as long as you're good at what you do. So I would I would say that's the distinction. And I would say to imagine the distinction, just imagine, imagine two project managers. And one of them is saying, you know, I'm hoping I will pick up skills here that will allow me to work at an effective altruist organization on project management. And the other person is saying, like, I don't know what my plan is. I'm just trying to get good at project management and I'm trying to see if I'm good at it. And I'm really focused on that. And then, you know, you go 20 years later and it's like, well, it turns out that like none of the all the effective altruist organizations are fine. They don't need project management. But like there's some other weird job that didn't exist at the time that we were having this conversation. And it's not project management, but it takes a lot of the same skills. You need to be a good manager. And it's, you know, it's not even at an EA organization. It's like you're at a a non-EA AI lab, but by by being a valuable employee, you're like getting a voice in some of key issues or something like that. It's just like something you, you didn't think about before. And so you imagine these two people and it's like the first person was focused on one of the people. I don't remember which one I said first was focused on the right question, which is, am I good at this or should I switch to another aptitude? And another person was like, I have this plan and their plan didn't work out. Yeah, just an observation is um, our impression or experience over the years is that most users of 80,000 hours seem to prefer the most concrete advice possible, like go and get yeah. this specific job. <laughs> and then failing that, they want to be told kind of what career path to, to get on something, something that's like very, very clear. And it's almost like to a slightly comical degree and an impractical degree, because obviously we can't be directive yeah, <laughs> to yeah. that specific people in that, in that kind of, in, in any way that's sensible. It would be irresponsible to be, to be as concrete as that. I guess arguably the aptitude framework is taking things to an even like slightly more, more abstract level because it's like neither a job nor a career, but like a, an even like broader class of careers. I guess 
It could be that, you, that your approach is, is the right one, but I wonder whether this might make it a bit more difficult to get uptake because it, it almost requires a little bit too much work on the part of the user. Maybe. I mean, I have occasional career coaching calls with people where I just I just say, if you, people just call me up and they're like, can I talk to you about career choice I'm making? It might be different. I might be talking to a different kind of person at a different kind of phase because a lot of times they're like choosing at that time that they're talking to me, but sometimes not. So maybe they'll be like, maybe they'll lead off with something like, well, Holden, I want to become this kind of thing in 10 years. And I'll be like, let's not talk about that. Let's just not talk about that. And I'll be like, what are the jobs you're considering? And then I'll say, what are the things that you've done in the past that you've been good at and that you've liked? And then I'll say, you know, what would you be doing day to day in this job and that job? Do you think you'd be good at that? Do you think you would like that? And then I'll kind of say like, well, it sounds like this job over here would really match with the kind of thing that you like doing, that you're good at doing, that you've done well in the past. This job would match less well with that, but you've got a theory that you should take it anyway because you calculated out the utilons and you can have more utilons per year of impact that way. And so you should go with the first one. And that's always what I say. You know, and and a lot of times I'm just kind of giving people permission to what they wanted to do anyway, but I do think it's usually the right thing. It doesn't always have that ending. So, so I mean, other times I'll say, well, you know what? It sounds like you really like to do this kind of work. Have you thought about a job of this general category? And they'll be like, oh, no, because I hadn't, because there aren't any jobs like that at EA Orcs. And I'm like, no, nah, but, you know, it would be good to develop that aptitude if you're going to be really good at it. And here's how it could come in handy later. And then we'll talk about, you know, where they might apply and what they might look into. And maybe I'll make a referral. So it's it's a different, I think it's a different style. I mean, I, I don't know. I've listened to a few ADK coaching calls and I think it's a different style. And I think maybe a, maybe a blend or a combination could be interesting. Yeah. So you kind of start out focusing primarily on trying to figure out what is the person's greatest strength or their aptitude or the, or the, or the area in which they in which they kind or of just a hypothesis. Yeah, it's actually very hard to know. I mean, part of my thinking is like a lot of the good careers I've seen, they have all these chaotic changes of direction. And it's like people just don't end up where they thought they would end up. And it's all very unpredictable. And so, you know, I'm trying to help people gather real information that makes them make these changes more quickly and more effectively rather than build things around a plan of where they're going to end up or even talk about impact per year because your impact per year early on is just a rounding error usually compared to the impact after you're really good at something. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, you, you're trying to suss out the kinds of skills that someone might kick ass at now or might become extremely uh, good at in the future. And then I guess you can almost broaden your view to think, well, what's all of the kinds of things that can make use of this, of this aptitude, which I guess people often do have a excessively narrow focus that's one thing i've noticed almost almost always when i'm talking to people about about their career is that they've usually like narrowed in and become like very invested in uh, potentially too few options early on yeah i think that's somewhat true yeah i think that's right a thing that has has bugged me is people who are like a year out of college and they're just like where am i going to do the most good this year and i'm just like that's a weird that's a weird framework like it's like there's way more variation in how much good you're going to do 10 years after you've built up a lot of career capital yeah it is it's very Interesting that that phenomenon, because I feel we've been pushing against that pretty hard from the very beginning, like with this idea of career capital. But I mean, maybe a bit of something that's going on there is a bit of like hybrid motivations where people both want to like have impact because of its intrinsic value, but also because they want to actually have a job in which they feel fulfilled and feel like they're they're having impact. That's also important to them. And they're not (laughs) the idea of delaying that for 10 or 20 years, maybe uh, is a little bit hard to swallow. Yeah, certainly. It could definitely be hard to do a job where you feel like everything you do is not having a positive impact at all. But I think, I don't know, to me, the most healthy attitude early in the career at a job is like, I'm learning. That, that's like the most healthy attitude. And I don't think that's the most healthy attitude every year in your career. But that was certainly, I mean, I don't know, I, I certainly did this. I mean, it was a little weirder because there was kind of no effective altruism when I was starting my career. But I was just like, yeah, I was just like, oh, this company, like they make predictions about macroeconomic events. Like that sounds fa- I would love to be able to do that. 
I didn't know why I wanted to be able to do that. I just wanted to be able to do that. And then I did learn things that were really useful for starting an organization that answers weird, hairy questions that require a bunch of poorly scoped research. And I, and I applied that skill to something that I thought was important. Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely recommend that people who are interested in thinking about career choice in order to have more impact, and I suppose especially career choice to have more impact if you're focused on long-termism, that people in that in that camp definitely go read it. It packs a lot of information into it, into a pretty short package. It's it's mercifully brief, but it does include many of the most important things that I think 80,000 hours and I guess the effective altruism community and, and, and you have, have learned over, over the last 10 years. Yeah, one thing I particularly liked about the post is it's focused on kind of guideposts to telling if you're on track in developing a given aptitude, so whether you should kind of stick stick with it and double down. For example, how does one tell if one is on track in political and, and bureaucratic aptitudes? Yeah, sure. So that's that's an example. So you know, I think I think some of these other frameworks, which I think are great, but I think you can you can end up kind of lost on like how am I refining my picture of what I should be doing and where I should be? So it's like you know, I wanted to work in AI. I managed to get this job at an AI organization. You know, what do I do now? What am I learning about what kind of job I should be in? The aptitudes framework is is a way of saying, you know, look, if you're if you're succeeding at the job you're in, then you are gaining positive information about your fit for that aptitude, not necessarily for that cause. If you're failing at the job you're in, you're gaining negative information about your fit for that aptitude, not necessarily that cause or that path. And so, yeah, I mean, like, so you gave the example of I, I want to be in government, and it's like, well, yeah, if you if you go into government and you have some peers or some, you know, some close connections, they can probably after a year, they can tell you how you're doing. They can say, you know, hey, you're doing great. You're moving up. You're getting promoted at a good rate. People here like think you're good. Like this is a good fit for you. Or they can tell you, you know, you're kind of stalling out and like people don't like this about you and that about you or the, or the system doesn't like this or that about you. And then you can start thinking to yourself, OK, you know, maybe I want to try something else. Maybe maybe government's not for me. So it's it's this kind of framework where it's not too hard to see if you're succeeding or failing. A lot of people who aren't necessarily all the way in your headspace and don't have all the same weird views you have can just tell you, are you succeeding or failing? And you can tell if you're getting promoted and also matters if you're like enjoying yourself and if you're finding it sustainable. These are all like actual predictors of whether this is going to be something that you keep getting better at and end up really good at. Yes. So one of the reasons that you prefer this kind of aptitude first way of approaching your career, I guess, especially early on, is that you think it's easier to tell whether you're likely to be able to, to develop a particular aptitude and maybe also whether you're succeeding at, at developing that aptitude. Yeah, do you want to explain why you think that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not really sure why I think that, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> I think it's just like a thing that I notice is when I, when I imagine myself as an early career person using a very cause or path-based framework, I notice myself like having a tough time learning year to year about what I should be doing differently and like knowing where I should go next and what I should do next and feeling like a lot of the stuff that I think I'm learning is actually very brittle. So like on a path-based thing, you might be like, you know, doing well at year one of your 20 year plan to get to a certain job, but it just doesn't really give you very reliable information about how year 15 is going to go. And when I think about the aptitude stuff, I just think, okay, like if you're a project manager and you're getting promoted and a lot of raises and people think you're great, you're getting a lot of positive feedback, then like probably you're going to keep becoming a better project manager. That's not like a wild prediction that could break in some brittle way for no reason. That's like probably true. You're gaining real evidence about it. So I, I'm not totally sure why I think that. I just think that. And I think it's, I think in many ways, it's just, it's just not that hard to tell if you're a fit for the aptitude. And so it's a kind of learning that I'm trying to get people to pay attention to and do that learning as they're also learning about what kind of cause they think is most important which is something you can also do, but I think it's more maybe something you're learning in your, in your spare time. Yeah. 
So I suppose there's different kind of lenses that you could take when you're trying to plan your career. And I think in our process, we'd kind of recommend that you spend a little bit of time thinking through all of these different lenses so that you don't miss something important. But you're kind of suggesting taking this aptitude first approach. Other lenses you might put on is like, well, which problem do I want to work on? Like maybe that's something that I should try to decide early on. Another one might be, what kind of career path do I want to be on? Like what sorts of specific jobs should I should I be going for? Yeah. Are there any other reasons why you prefer the the aptitude first approach? The only thing I would add is that another thing I was trying to do with this post is also a very important part of it is the aptitude agnostic part of the post. So I, I also talk about how, you know, and especially in long-termism, it's just we've got these weird problems we're working on. No one's really sure what to do. There's a small number of jobs that are really directly on the most important thing. And not everyone is going to end up in a job that is directly working on the problem they care about most. And that's okay. And I think there's like a lot of opportunities for people to do a lot of good in whatever job they're in and using whatever aptitude they have. And so that was that was another thing that I that I tried to put in this post to say that, you know, one way to think of your career is instead of saying my goal is to work in the most important AI job. And if I fail, I failed to say my goal is to build this aptitude. And if I do, there's a high probabilistic chance that that aptitude will be useful for the problems I care about. And if it's not, then here's what I'm going to do instead. Because as long as I've gotten good at something, there's actually a lot of ways that you can help with whatever problem you care about most. And, you know, I think I focus on long-termism. And so that that was another important part. And, and I think those are the two biggest things I'm going for, is just trying to turn people onto this framework of making hypotheses and learning about them that I think can be very informative and helpful in choosing your career. And then also trying to lay out this kind of backstop of, you know, you don't need to be do or die for getting the job you want. If you get really good at something, you're going to do some good. Yeah. A sort of assumption in the aptitude first approach is that if you develop some really strong expertise, then you're likely to be able to switch the like problem or industry that you're working on or, or a part of in the future. And I guess in my mind, deep experience with problems like artificial intelligence or biosecurity or international relations and so on, like having worked in that and knowing the people and being familiar with all with the information that people in that organization or industry are familiar with are kind of important filters to entry. And so to some extent, they are like they are aptitudes of their own, or at least it's not so easy to just always carry over aptitudes between between very different problem areas. Yeah, is, is that something you agree with? Or maybe I'm, am I misunderstanding the advice? I think it's only true for some aptitudes. So I think if if you've got a, you know, you're you're on a very like your job is like policy advisor, then you're going to have to be building up expertise in what area you're advising in probably. Although although I would think super early in your career it's actually just totally fine to see if you're doing well on a policy advisor track on some random thing and then later start building it up. But you'll need to build it up for a while for sure. So you'll need to if you're a policy advisor on AI, then at some point you will need to build up AI expertise. You know, there's other jobs which is like way less true. It's just like, you know, I do think this example of being in government, you know, is I think there are a lot of roles where you, you don't need to have been in this area your whole career. You can kind of, you know, you can you can you can kind of move around if you've been in like the very general area. So so it's like, you know, if you've been working on like science and technology, it's like you don't necessarily have have to have been working on AI. You know, I also think there's like there are a lot of areas where you can just get up to speed really damn quickly. AI actually kind of seems to be one of them. Like a lot of a lot of the best AI scientists I know, like they were biologists or physicists and they caught up like frighteningly quickly to become great AI scientists. So, you know, and they were they were probably just like building a bunch of scientific habits of mind, some of which actively may be diversifying and complementary to the normal ML field and might actually make them better. So I think it varies. I think I think there's jobs where you need to be building up expertise pretty early. There's jobs where you need to build up expertise at some point, but you can do it pretty quickly. And then there's jobs where you just don't need to build up expertise because you're a manager, you know, and, and you're good at that and you don't need to be an expert in something else. 
I think it just varies. And I tried to I tried to organize it that way. So I think I just fully own some aptitudes are also paths. They're the same thing because the path is well defined. So if if you want to be a professor of economics, there's nothing fancy here. Like go get an economics <laughs> PhD. You know, it's all the same steps. It's my my framework has nothing to add. And I just own that. Like some aptitudes are just paths. Some aptitudes are skills you can build that open up a lot of different possibilities. Yeah. So Having listened to the section on the world's most important century, I could imagine some listeners might think, you know, Holden sure seems to think that there's some very specific technologies or very specific issues that could determine, you know, how this century and how the whole future goes. That is a slightly strange juxtaposition with the idea that you shouldn't worry too much early on in your career about like, you know, what are you building expertise or like what specific problem are you learning about and building career capital in? How do you reconcile those? Well, I mean, I would definitely say that if like, you know, again, it's only one framework. And I would definitely say that if you have if you have two job offers and they're both exciting and one of them's an AI and one of them's not, and you agree with me about the most important century, like take the AI one, like no problem, you know, and and they don't have to be equally exciting. I just said they're both exciting. Right. So so I'm not I'm not saying this is, you know, a totally dominant factor or something, but I would also say if you don't have or if, if your only opportunity to work in AI is some job that isn't very exciting to you and isn't going to really build anything and that you're not really into and you're not going to be working with great people and not going to be leveling up. And then you have some other job where you could really learn a lot, grow a lot, build a great network, build career capital. Yeah, I would say take the second one. I absolutely would. And, you know, a lot of the people I know now who I'm most excited about the work they're doing in AI did not start in AI and should not have started in AI. So, you know, I mean, that would certainly include me. Like, I've, I've spent a lot of my career, like, trying to figure out how to build an organization to answer a hairy research question. And that has been really useful for this most important century hypothesis stuff. And I think if I'd been like age 23 working AI, I wouldn't even been in deep learning. So that would have sucked. And, you know, I would have been working on these AI frameworks that are just not even that useful. And it really would have been bad. You know, I mean, so so my wife, Daniela, she worked in tech and she built up all these, you know, personnel management skills. And now she works in AI. And it's like, yeah, again, I think if she had been like on AI from the beginning, I just don't think that would have gone nearly as well. I actually think there weren't really like fusions of tech companies and AI companies the way there are today. And I think tech companies are a much better place to pick up the skills that that is now needed in that kind of role. Yeah. So in prepping for this interview, I went back, I, I did, didn't just read this blog post, I went back and looked at some stuff that you'd said and, and written over the years about, about career choice. And I suppose the common thread that people have probably kind of picked up on already is is the idea that you should kind of just flourish in whatever or just like trying to kick ass in kind of whatever, yeah. whatever early on. That's right. and, that, and that's a strategy yeah. in, in itself. And I think the tone in favor of that was even sharper, I think, five or 10 years ago. What have you observed that makes you believe that, that that's a good approach? Is it primarily based on kind of empirical experience or something else? I mean, it's pretty hard to really have justified empirical <laughs> beliefs about career choice it's you know career choice it's like not even it's not even a well-posed question because we're like what should people do with their career it's like all right well who you know and then if i if i start talking to an individual well they have like so much information that i don't about themselves about their networks about their feelings which i think matt you know i I think a job is so all-consuming that your feelings about it are going to be a major factor and how it how it feels to work there every day not saying it's the only thing that matters i'm not saying do what you love i'm just saying like it's really important and i don't have the information about it that i could have if i'm talking to you so there's really no version of the career choice question that is like the same kind of question as what are ai timelines there's no version of that question that like we can really like you know pinpoint our disagreements down to Bayesian probabilities and like, you know, just hash it out. It's just like, we're either talking in generalizations or we're talking to specific people where they've got 80% of the information. We're trying to do some value added more like they have 99% of the information. We're trying to do some value added. So, I mean, I don't know what my views are based on. I look around (laughs) myself at people who I think are doing great things and I ask how they got there. And that's most of it. 
So, you know, but I, yeah, I absolutely think that when you kick ass, like the job market is really unfair. And especially the market for like high impact, effective altruist jobs is really unfair. And the people who are incredible at something are so much more in demand than the people who are merely great at it. And the people who are great are so much more in demand than the people who are good. And the people who are good are so much more in demand than the people who are okay. And so it's just a huge, really important source of variation. And so then it's like, can you know enough about what cause or path you want to be on that the variance in that, the predictable variance in that beats the variance in how good you're going to be? And I'm like, usually not, or usually at least they're quite competitive and you need to pay a lot of attention to how good you're going to be because there's a lot of different things you could do to help with it with the most important century. And a lot of them are hard to predict today. But a robust thing is that like whatever you're doing, you're doing it so much better if you're better at it. So that's part of it. Also, people who are good at things, people who kick ass, they get all these other random benefits. So one thing that happens is people who kick ass become connected to other people who kick ass. And that's like really, really valuable. It's just like a really big deal. Like, you know, you look at these AI companies and they want boards and they want the people on their boards to be impressive. And it's like those people, a lot of those people are not AI people necessarily, or they weren't for most of their careers. They kicked ass at something. That's how they got there. And, you know, a lot of my aptitude agnostic stuff is about this, too, where I'm like, let's say that you missed and you picked a skill that turned out it's never going to get you a direct work EA job, but you kicked a bunch of ass and you know a bunch of other people who kick ass. So now you have this opportunity to, you know, to affect people, you know, and get them to do a lot of good. And they are not the people you would know if you hadn't kicked ass. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me that if you can somehow become known as truly exceptional, like, you know, just the best person at even doing something that's like a relatively narrow domain or not an especially important domain, that you do get these peculiar, peculiar benefits from that. One way that I worry that this advice could go wrong with some people is if if there's nothing that they really can find that they are going to be the most exceptional at, that they are in a position, I guess, to be, you know, good at something that really matters, but they're not in a position to be exceptional at anything else in particular. But they could then think, well, I should just double down on the thing that I happen to be best at. And then they'll get kind of get the, the worst of both worlds where they've neither focused on something that's itself important, nor like, do they get these, what do you call it, increasing, increasing returns to being like ever, ever better in a, in a positional sense. Yeah, did you worry about that? A little bit. I mean, I, I think what I'm saying scales down okay. So, you know, I don't know that well. I haven't like, I haven't like built a model or anything, but I'm kind of like, you know, being amazing is better than being great. Being great is better than being good. Being good is better than being okay. I think all the things I'm saying just scale down okay as you talk about the different layers of that. So, you know, I think if you're if you're good instead of okay at what you do, you're going to know other people who are good instead of okay at what they do. And I think that gives you opportunities to kind of, you know, I don't know, just be a person that they trust. And that matters more than, you know, than if everyone you know is kind of okay at what they do. It gives you just like, Again, it affects like what circles you're moving in, what random opportunities you have to like meet people who are doing stuff that is cool. The biggest thing is it's the same argument about, you know, it's it's like it's hard to know what kind of job is going to be relevant when it's most important and when you're at the peak of your career. But whatever it is, being good at it will be a lot better than being okay at it. You'll have, you'll have a lot more impact at it that way, in my opinion. So that's that's a lot of it. And then I do want to be clear that I'm you know, I'm only presenting this as a major important access of variation, not as the sole exclusive thing. And what I do in my post is I, I list aptitudes that all seem important and they all seem ballpark important. Like, I'm not saying there's no differences, but I'm saying like, you know, most of the aptitudes I listed, it's like you could pick any random two and I'd probably rather have a good person at A than an okay person at B, like in terms of like how much impact I'd bet on them to have. And it's those, those specific aptitudes, it's those ones. So I'm not saying... 
whatever it is, whatever it is you can be good at, just go do that. Because I think there are there are plenty of aptitudes that are way less likely to lead anywhere good. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any um, specific stories of people who've taken this just flourish in whatever early on approach and it's worked out, worked out well for them that you could share? I kind of feel like this is everyone I know, although it although it dissolves, like some of the distinctions dissolve. So like, you know, the obvious people I look at is, you know, myself, I describe myself a little bit. You know, I've, I've definitely taken that approach my whole life. My wife, Daniela, you know, was kind of the classic case of like a long time in the tech world, a long time actually trying different things and figuring out what she liked, which I think was also really valuable. And then realizing that she could be like kind of a, you know, a high paced organization scaling manager in the tech world and now does that in AI. You know, a lot of the like kind of EAs now who are whatever, who are on boards or in government. So it's it's some of that. And then it's like, OK, there's open philanthropy employees. And it's like, how do you want to classify that? Because like, OK, like they took what they thought was a high impact job. And so you could say, well, that was the path approach, not the aptitude approach. But actually, whenever I'm talking to someone about whether to take the job at open philanthropy, I always try to switch them into the aptitudes thing. So I'm always like, you know, they're always like, well, I can have impact at open fill, but you guys have a lot of good people. Or I could go here and they would have someone really bad instead. And I've done the math and blah, blah. And I'm just like, look, I'm just going to like ask you to change the whole frame here. Like, I think open fill looks quite good on impact. I'm going to ask you to ignore that. And I'm just going to say, you know, Go somewhere where you're going to be surrounded by great people working on stuff that you are have energy for and, you know, are learning a lot about and and you're you're moving, you know, you're kind of leveling up and becoming like a more a more impressive human being. Just make the decision on that criteria. And in some ways, I just put open fill at a disadvantage because we're such an impact focused organization that maybe you'll be like, oh, there's a random tech company that's better. And I'm just giving them that. I'm just saying, go, go take the tech company job if that's if that's how it is. So it just dissolves. It's just like, so I, I kind of want to say like, I know all the good cases I know kind of feel like <laughs> not, not literally all, but a lot of them feel like they, you know, followed the aptitudes, but in a lot of cases, the distinctions dissolve. Yeah. I wonder, it's possible that I have a, I'm not sure whether bias is quite the right word, but I have a peculiar selection effect on the, the people that, the people that I know, the people that I meet, many of them, including me, took jobs in order to have a large impact very early on because we decided to kind of go and start up to, to try to yeah. build this thing called effective altruism. So I can think of myself and quite a lot of other people who I know who have done very well, even though just they decided to go into some role that they thought was especially impactful early on. I suppose... At the same time, I can't think of any of them who did that where they weren't also thinking, I'm going to flourish in this role and this exactly. like really uses my aptitudes. So I suppose that you just had a, a happy coincidence of, of these two things, both recommending the same course of action. Yeah, I think the happy coincidence, it's not a huge coincidence. I mean, one piece of advice I give to people is like, go to small things that are getting bigger. I mean, that's just like a great piece of way to build career capital, just, you know, and and I tell people to do things they're excited about and motivated by. And, you know, that's like, I was just like, I was just on fire to start Give Well. I was just like, I can't believe this thing doesn't exist. And like, you know, I was I was going to be so much more productive and excited and motivated doing Give Well than I was going to be something else. And that's what made it an easy call. So, you know, these things, these things do dissolve because I think, because effective altruism is kind of a new thing that I think is getting bigger. So I think if you're into it and you share the values, you're actually in a kind of small number of people who are into it. And so it actually is, it becomes quite appealing to go and do effective altruism stuff. And there could be a lot of opportunities. So it dissolves in a lot of cases, but then there's a lot of cases where it doesn't dissolve. And I think a lot of the people just follow my advice, like whether or not I give it to them. And a lot of, a lot of what I'm trying to do is kind of clarify the situation. Yeah, Make clarify the situation. Yeah, make people happy about it. Get rid of some of the self-resentment and guilt, but also just like speed everything up, make everyone like more aware of what they're doing. Like, I think there are people who just 
they just go through wasted cycles of like, here's a job I like. Here's a job that I've calculated to high impact. I'm taking the ladder. Ooh, this sucks. I can't really do this. I'm going to make myself. I'm going to force myself. Oh, God, I couldn't do that. Oh, I burned out. Oh, that was really unpleasant. Well, now I'm just going to do something I can do. And it's just mm. like, I, I would like to skip that. Skip that. So, <laughs> you know, and, and I think just people can be faster at figuring out where they're going to thrive if they're paying attention to where they're going to thrive. And if that's one of the first questions they're asking. So so that is a lot of the advice. So a lot of times I'm just giving people permission to do what they want in some sense. But I think that's valuable. Yeah, I think. With Eddie Thus Now is early on, we talked a lot about career capital because we noticed that a lot of people, as we were talking about earlier, would think about, you know, how can I have the biggest impact right now? Like me having just graduated from, from my degree and being 22. And that, and that can often be a big mistake because you need to think longer term, need to think about aptitudes building up and accumulation. But then we started to find some people who were in a position very early on to get like exactly kind of the job or the path that they, that they ultimately wanted to be on. They could already say get, hypothetically, get a job as an AI safety researcher. But yeah. then they were sometimes reading our articles and thinking, no, I'm going to go and do consulting or do some other unrelated thing just for the purposes of building up career capital. And so we started having these things like, if you can already jump into like the exact thing that you think is the right thing for you in the long term, you should go do that. I generally agree with that. Although, yeah. although I would say, I mean, if some if someone is like, man, I could do AI or statistics and I just fucking love statistics and I've got yeah. so many ideas I'm excited to pursue. I'd be like, do statistics. For all you know, it's going to make you a better AI researcher than the other path anyway. Yeah. So both of us are very keen on the idea that people should not take jobs that they feel unexcited about, where where they don't think they're going to feel like they're thriving. They're not going to be not going to get flow during the course of their work. That's just a devastating position to be in, or it's a devastating disadvantage to, to be in. Maybe it's worth thinking about, like, what is the limiting principle here? Like, what what is what's a case where someone or like a role would be like too unimportant or too too distant from things that can have impact, such that even if someone thought that they would flourish in it, or it was the kind of thing that they were most motivated by that they shouldn't do it. A lot of my feeling is a weighted average. So, you know, a lot of my feeling is just like we should we should just put weight on each of these things. And I think the aptitudes probably just they could use more explicit attention in EA. It would just make the framework nicer and better if they were just like, you know, a good chunk of the picture. So it's like in the limit, if someone is like, well, I can be a basketball player or a AI researcher, but as an AI researcher, I will barely complete my PhD. And as a basketball player, I will win the MVP award in the NBA. <laughs> and I would be like, okay, basketball player it is, you know, but yeah. I mean, what? In almost all cases, I would tell someone to go be an AI researcher rather than a basketball player if they want to, if they want to have a lot of impact. There are jobs that everyone wants, just everyone wants. And like you will be treated very badly if you go into them and you will have a really unpleasant or like it could be pleasant if you get really lucky. But you're going to your career is going to have a lot of luck in it. And there's a high probability that it's just going to be like a lot of frustration because like you are so expendable and you are so replaceable if what you want to be is, you know, a certain kind of entertainer. And I would say, unless you're just totally on fire and nothing I can say will dissuade you, you should probably not go that way. The supply and demand is not favorable. Like go go somewhere where there's, you know, better supply and demand, such as EA, which is a very promising set of ideas where that is not, not quite the same way, where it's like there's an infinite number of these people around. Yeah, there is this funny circumstance that if you can combine an understanding of an interest in long termism with artistic ability, then I think there actually oh, are yeah. quite a lot of yeah, maybe lot of okay. Roles so then maybe you should, but then but then yeah. you're going to be like a weird artist who's like supported by EA funders, and it's like you don't have to play by the normal <laughs> rules. But you know, if you find yourself spending five years bringing someone coffee in the hopes that you might luckily get a shot at an audition for something, it's just like you you've picked a job where the supply and demand is not in your favor, and yeah, yeah. I wanted to be a novelist for a ton of my life, so. That would be one of those jobs. Yeah. I suppose now you're writing blog posts, so it's uh, slightly related. Same, thing. Same difference. Yeah. 
what is your vision for like the, the kind of amount of time that someone would spend developing an aptitude before they change their mentality towards uh, now I want to use this aptitude to have an have an impact? Or I mean, potentially, I guess it could go all through their career, and then they just find that there's something that that suits their aptitude that they're already in, and a way to have impact there. But yeah, I generally say to people like, do you feel like you're still learning? Do you feel like you're still growing? And do you feel like you want to be in this for the long haul, this aptitude? And so I think at the point where someone says, you know, I'm very good at what I do. And this is the kind of thing that I am going to keep doing. I'm happy to keep doing. I don't mind it. And I'm not like dramatically growing anymore or I'm not dramatically growing where I am. Then I'm basically like switching my framework with them. And I, I probably sound a lot more like you guys. Then, then I'm just like, you should work on AI. Like, let's find a way for you to work on AI, you know? And if I can't find a way for them to work on AI, then I say, well, you know, here's the aptitude agnostic vision and I've got you in my Rolodex. I think Rolodex just means Google Sheet now, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Google Contacts. Yeah. We were saying earlier that people can find it hard to go into these roles where they're just building their aptitude, but they don't feel like they're having any having any impact because it's just demoralizing to feel like your work isn't isn't already isn't already meaningful. I suppose how much weight should we put on that? That could badly affect people's mental health, or perhaps just being disconnected from any way of actually doing good could cause them to potentially lose interest in doing good and you know, just become interested in, yeah. in making money or developing professional skills and so on. Well, there's different things here. I mean, I think I think I, I often tell people to do what they're excited to do or what they think they can be great at, which is often connected and related. Again, not literally whatever they're excited to do, but like to to put that weight, to put on weight on that. You know, so I often tell people to do that. And a lot of a lot of people, including me, just like the calculated impact is going to have a big effect on that. And if it does, then it does. So, you know, what I'm not saying is ignore impact. Like for me, like I have trouble getting out of bed for a job if there's some other job that I think could have more impact. You know, I'm, it's going to be very hard to stop me from wanting to switch. And so that's fine. I should consider that. It's it's when someone is, you know, more excited about A and they want to go to B because it intellectually has more impact. That's where I'm more resistant. And then so anyway, so people who are people who are having trouble getting excited about work because they just don't feel like it's high impact. I mean, yeah, I would say they sh- they should be looking for a job where they are more excited to come into work. And I think that's just all there is to do about that. In the blog post, you mentioned a couple of ways that people can be helpful to long-termism outside of careers as uh, as such. Can you mention a couple of those? Because a few, a few I thought were quite cool. I think the the basic, I mean, I, I list a bunch of stuff. I have a bunch of bullet points, but I, I would say the basic vision is just like, you've got a set of ideas you care about and you're, you're good at something. You're a role model. People look up to you. People are interested in the ideas you're interested in. They listen to you. They take you seriously. You show up to community events with other people who care about these issues. You make those events better. Now more people come to the events. More people are enjoying the events. More people are kind of getting into the ideas, taking them seriously. You're also helping improve the events. You're saying these events aren't working for me. This community isn't working for me. And I'm this great role model. And I'm this kind of person you should want to make happy. And so you're doing all that stuff. And I think that's a fair amount of impact. I think that just, you know, being a person who is like connected to other successful people at different levels of success, we could we could replace with any of them. And, you know, and just kind of, you know, living, living the good life and having an influence on others by your presence. So that's a lot of it. And then I think there's another thing that I think is, is a large chunk of the impact you can have in any job, which is kind of a weird meta thing, but it's being ready to switch, which I think is, uh, is, is actually super valuable and super hard. And so if what you are is you're a person doing a job that's not, not direct work on long-termism, there's two different versions of you. There's a version of you where you're comfortable, you're happy, and someone comes to you one day and they're like, you know what? 
you thought that your work was not relevant to long-termism, but it turns out you is, but you have to, it is, but you have to come work for this weird organization, take a giant pay cut, you know, maybe move, you know, get a lot less of all the stuff you enjoy day to day. Will you please do it? And there's a version of you that says, oh, I can't do that. I'm completely comfortable. And there's a version of you that's like, I'm in, done, I'm ready. It is really hard to be the second kind of that person. And I think if you're a successful person in some non-long-termist relevant job, you could be thinking about what it would take for you to be that person. You probably need financial savings. You probably need just like a certain kind of psychological readiness that you probably need to cultivate, <laughs> you know, deliberately. You probably need to be connected enough to the community of long-termists that you wouldn't completely, you know, completely be at sea if you entered into it one day. And so it's hard. It's a lot of work. It's not easy. And it's super valuable in expectation because you're really good at something and we don't know whether that something is going to be useful. So there's a chance it is. And the usual expected value calculation applies. And so I think if you're managing to pull off both those things that you're kind of you're respected by people around you, you're a positive, you know, influence and force and someone who's looked up to and you're ready to switch at any moment. I'm like, gosh, your expected impact is really good. I'm comparing you now to someone who is like, they've got that job that everyone on the EA forum is always going gaga over and they're barely <laughs> hanging on to it. And I'm like, yeah, I think I think the first person, I think the first person has higher expected impact. I guess we've talked about a couple of ways that your advice differs in tone or emphasis than 80,000 hours, but are there any other ones that are, that are worth highlighting? I don't really think so. I mean, I, I do look at your website occasionally. I would let you know if there was specific stuff I disagree with. I don't think there is specific stuff that I'm like, this is wrong. I think there is, you know, there are there are vibes and frameworks and like methods of analysis and angles that I, you know, I, I think would it would benefit it would benefit the career advice to contain more of them. And I yeah. think I've gone through those okay. Yeah, is it well, when I read when I read the blog post, I was like, I agree with basically all of this. <laughs> I was like, it's going to be a little bit hard to find that that much uh, that, that many disagreements to, to to really bring up. From one point of view, maybe that's good because we've reached a consensus a little bit. From another point of view, maybe yeah. are we just like are we just blind to all of these ways that we could be completely wrong? It's like slightly suspicious that there's so much convergence on the same ideas. Well, I think it's something weird about career choice, the topic. I mean, it's just it's one of these topics where things never get all the way to the bottom of being the most concrete things where we're putting probabilities. And so, you know, I'm making generalizations and I'm like, well, don't do this too much and don't do that too much and weigh this against that. And you're kind of saying, yeah, you know, yeah, you should. And, you know, it, a lot of times people feel like they agree when they're talking about don't do too much of this, don't do too much of that. Consider this, consider this, consider that. So I think that's OK. But then once you have a specific I, case, perhaps yeah. you might. But I really I really do think there's a, an actual gain to be had from talking in this way and from using this framework and communicating this vibe. And I think that is a real thing. So I think it's like, if there's a disagreement, it's not that there's something you wrote that I think is wrong or something I wrote that you think is wrong. It's there's a, there's a framework that I put out there that I think it would be good if it was, you know, if it was part of the 80,000 hours vibe. And I don't think you get that when you come to the website right now. At the risk of being slightly navel gazy. Yeah. What would be your best guesses about what 80,000 hours is doing wrong or at least uh, so optimally? Sure. So I've mentioned the, you know, I mentioned the career advice thing. I mean, the, the career advice from ADK, it, it feels a little off to me because of the fact that it's kind of, it feels like it's just not emphasizing this lens. It's, it's, and it's not about things you're saying that I disagree with. It's about, you know, you're guiding people to what to consider, what to pay attention to, what to think about. And I think I'd like to, you know, it would feel more intuitive to me if it was more guiding people to think about the kind of stuff in the aptitudes post. But I think, you know, I also think like in general, criticizing organizations is a little bit of a weird thing because of what organizations exist for is to take something and do it really well and do it better than any other organization can. And I think that, you know, I am not usually that excited to look at an organization and say, well, they 
you know, they did this, which was a mistake, or they did that, which was embarrassing, or they did these two things, which were inconsistent. I'm just kind of like, I don't know. A lot of the best, most successful companies, they made so many mistakes. They did so many embarrassing, comical, ridiculous, stupid stuff early on. They almost went bankrupt. There's all these great stories. And that doesn't matter. What matters, I mean, it does matter some, but what matters is that they did one thing really well, and then a lot of the mistakes and challenges they were having worked out. So I don't want to overstate this. I think that, you know, there are mistakes organizations make that are really important, that are really damaging, that really need to be reckoned with and apologized for. I don't have any of those for 80,000 hours, at least in the recent past that I could think of. But I think once you get past that, as an outsider talking about an organization, it's like, I often just don't have anything to say. I'm often just like, look, like if you guys do something kind of silly, if you did it because you were focused on something else, then I'm not really sure it was wrong to do the silly thing. And I think we should expect organizations to just screw up a lot of things. And the real question is, how much good have they done? And have you guys done everything you can? And that's just a hard question for me to answer. I'm just like, gosh, like, you know, I just don't know if 80,000 hours is as good as it could be. That's like a harder. It's a harder question for me to answer <laughs> from the outside. Um, I hope it's not. <laughs> I, hope we can, I hope it's not. I hope we can be better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Good point. So then it's like, how accessible are the ways to be better? You know, one thing one thing that I do wonder about a little is I, I, I feel like 80,000 hours brands and self conceptualizes as a career advice org. But I often feel like when I ask what 80,000 hours is awesome at, I feel like it's more like communications. It's more like taking important ideas and communicating them accessibly and getting eyeballs on them. And so that does make me wonder, you know, if you were more self-conceptualizing that way, would you be more focused on that? Would you be even better at it? I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. I think maybe four, four years ago or so, I think we really just consciously realized that we just had our hands really full merely like keeping up with and then digesting and kind of, and deciding whether all of these ideas that were coming out from long-termism and effective altruism, whether they were good ideas and then trying to explain them to to a much broader audience that, that isn't deeply as constant. But this was this was just a full-time job. <laughs> like, yeah. That relative to the number of staff we had, there was so much to do there. And I think that that in part led to this podcast, for example, where we're like, how can we just shovel out as much of this yeah. like amazing, amazing oh, thing cool, that, that, that's going yeah. on out there? And and that that is more of a communications role than a research role. There's a research aspect in like you have to decide a bit like which which are the ideas that are worth amplifying and which which ones maybe will you leave on the shelf i guess i hope at some point we'll have succeeded in you know popularizing and explaining well all of the ideas that we have and then perhaps we'll, we need to come up with some more original stuff but it does still seem like maybe the the research community around these ideas is is getting bigger so <laughs> yeah there is always always new stuff coming out that we, that we still have to communicate and then kind of contextualizing like what would this imply for careers is maybe a step that other groups don't take yeah, I mean, I, I might go the other way. I mean, I might, I might say, gosh, look at the aptitudes. Like, you guys are really good at this. You guys are like you, you kind of found what I call a wheelhouse, right? Like you're, you, yeah. you, you can you can take these weird ideas. You can explain them. You can get eyeballs on them. You're really good at it. You know what you're doing. You built up all this. You know, you, Rob, I mean, you know how to how to play the social media game. You know how to do it. You know, all this <laughs> stuff that I don't know about it. Um, yeah. You know, I, and um, and so maybe I'm thinking like, well, don't have this don't have this hope that you'll finish and then you'll get back to career advice or something or that you'll be more original. Just get better and better and better. You know, maybe you guys could be clearer. Maybe you guys could be more viral. That's something that I think would be maybe interesting to think about. I don't know. I mean, it's always so silly for someone who doesn't work at an org to advise the org, in my opinion. It's, I mean, it, it, it could give you stuff to think about, but the ratio of how much time you spend thinking about your work to how much time I have is not putting me in a good position here. 
Yeah, well, it's a. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting idea. Just just double down on the on the, on the stuff that's that's going well. Yeah, I, I do agree about the, uh, the criticizing orgs thing. I guess the number of times that I've read people online say, "I can't believe that eighty thousand hours didn't consider doing X." I think like a hundred percent of the time we have considered doing X. But I must admit, even having had that experience, that does not stop me from then sending <laughs> down the organization. I can't believe they didn't think to do this. I can't believe this company designed this product this way. <laughs> I, I think it's almost backwards. Like I think that organizations. It's like there's organizations that are moving very carefully and deliberately and checking every box. And there's organizations that are kind of like this giant clown car that's racing down the track and like all this junk is flying (laughs) off it. And it's just like a mess and it's all very silly, but it's moving faster than the other one. And that's often depending on what you're doing, but that's often what matters more. So, and that's why I think it's tricky to judge organizations. Yeah. All right. Yeah. If people want to learn more about your views on career advice, I can definitely recommend checking out that post. We'll stick up a link to it, or you can just Google my current impressions on career choice for long-termists. All right. Let's broaden our view on long-termism a bit away from career choice and think about how long-termism is going as a community of people and as an intellectual community that's trying to have a positive impact on the on the world as a whole. What do you think is kind of the, the state of long-termism, so to speak, as a group of folks who are trying to improve the, the long-term prospects of humanity? Yeah, I think about this a lot, you know, because my my job is to kind of help get money out to help support long-termist goals. And especially because recently I've kind of focused, you know, more exclusively on long-termism. And, you know, I mean, I think it's a it's an interesting state we're in. I mean, I think the community's had some success growing and there's a lot of great people in it. I think there's a lot of really cool ideas that have come from the community. But I think we have a real challenge, which is we just don't we don't have a long list of things that we want to tangibly change about today's world or that we're like highly confident should change or that, you know, we're highly confident that we that we want people to do. And that can make things pretty tough. And I I think it it reminds me a bit. It's like an analogy to, uh, you know, to a company or an organization where when you're starting off, you kind of you don't really know what you're doing and it wouldn't really be easy to explain to someone else what to do in order to reliably and significantly help the organization accomplish its mission. You don't even really know what the mission is. And when you're starting off like that, that's like the wrong time to be raising tons of money, hiring tons of people. You know, that's the kind of thing that I've, I've struggled with a lot at Give Well and Open Philanthropy is like, when is the right time to hire people to scale up? And when you do it too early, it can be very painful because you have you have people who want to help, but you don't really have a great sense of how they can help and you're trying to guide them. But unless they kind of just happen to think a lot like you, then it's it's really hard to get there. And then, you know, eventually what happens is hopefully you kind of you experiment, you think, you try things and you figure out what you're about. And I, I guess there's a bit of an analogy to the product market fit idea, although although this is a bit different because I'm talking about figure, you know, we're talking about nonprofits and I'm figuring out what you're trying to do. Yeah. But that's an analogy in my head. And it kind of makes me think that long termism is a bit of a weird position right now. We're in this kind of early phase. We still lack a lot of clarity about what we are trying to do. And that makes it hard to operate at the scale we could to push out money the way that we hopefully later will, uh, etc. So I guess when Open Philanthropy got interested in long-termism, people, including me, were thinking, well, suddenly there's a lot more funding chasing opportunities that haven't really increased year to year, despite the fact that there's a whole lot more money involved. But this is kind of a disequilibrium that we don't expect is going to last that long. More people will get involved, like more projects will start up and we'll be able to absorb more funding and, and eventually we'll have a more reasonable balance between funding and and staff or at least people who are able to lead projects. But it seems like more people have, have raised more money. Some of the companies that people with long-termist inclinations are running have been very successful. 
And in fact, it seems like maybe things have become even more unbalanced over the last five years in terms of the amount of the number of people who would be interested in funding really flourishing long-termist projects relative to the number of them that, that, that exist. Yeah, do you share that perception? Yeah, definitely share that perception. Turns out long-termists seem to be really good at making money. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think we may be there for a while. I mean, it's so hard to say though, because you know, it's not that hard to imagine that if some of this stuff about AI pans out, you can imagine a future world where just a, a ridiculous, ridiculous percentage of the world economy is going into basically compute. That could be like in the run-up to transformative AI as people are trying to get there. It could be afterward as, you know, as people are trying to kind of use very powerful AI systems. So, I mean, in a sense, one one way I'd put it is like there's a lot of money right now relative to kind of like people who can evaluate where to put the money and then people who can use the money to do things that are kind of reliably and believed by the funders to be good. And there is that imbalance. And then what happens once you automate a lot of that stuff? Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's an interesting way of putting it. Um to what extent do you think it's a bottleneck? N- not only that, there's maybe not tons of really experienced people trying to trying to launch projects of a long termist flavor, but also just that there aren't a lot of people who can who can vet those projects and fully like determine how promising they are in the scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's just it's a huge imbalance right now. I mean, the, there's a lot of money and there's just it's it's a pretty small community in the scheme of things. So I think we're we're kind of low on everything. We're low on people who can run great projects that can make a big, robustly good difference for long-termism. We're low on people who can identify those people. Yeah. What does this situation imply for someone who's sympathetic to long-termism and is, say, 18 and just really early in, in their career and life? Does it suggest anything about how they ought to plan for the longer term? I think it I think it I mean I think like earning to give looks a lot worse than it used to especially for a long termist but I don't I don't think it looks worthless and I think you know one of the nice things about long termism having more money I mean the world where open philanthropy was like planning on being more than half of all long termist money that was like ever going to be was a you know kind of an unhealthy dynamic in many ways. And I spent a lot of time and a lot of stress just trying to think about, you know, what do we, how can we behave in that world? And how can we take some of the decision-making power off of us without causing other problems? And it, you know, it was real tough on me just to like have trouble interacting with people in the community in like any way, shape or form because of the funding power dynamic, which like obviously is still there. But, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of benefits to having more diversified funding sources, to having people who can search out their own opportunities. And, you know, like I said, things can always change again, but I think earning to give looks a lot worse than it used to. Yeah. I suppose uh, people who want to earn to give, maybe there's a stronger fit in, in taking the worldview diversification position and doing some of the more global health and wellbeing work, even maybe if you weren't super inclined to that. Maybe there's some trade where people who have, who have additional funding can direct funding towards that. And then maybe some people who are like on the fence in terms of where they want to go with their career, the people should maybe move over into, into long-termism a little bit more. That's definitely possible. I'm not, I'm not totally sure because, you know, I, I do think anytime, anytime you take your money and you just invest it at a pretty good rate, it's like, I think this is a thing that, you know, has been, has been definitely pointed out by others, just that, that, you know, we have this intuition that if you're not spending money, that you're like falling behind someone who is, but, but actually you're not. If someone else is working and you're doing nothing, then they're getting ahead. If someone else is spending and you're saving, maybe you're getting ahead, or at least it's not clear. So, you know, I, I don't know. Like, I think it's, I, I'm not sure that that super long term should be donated to global health and well-being, especially because I think the money in that is going to go up a lot too. But it's it's certainly possible. And personally, I mean, I tend to donate that way, but that's more because I'm so focused on long term as a professional capacity that I'm just I'm just trying to diversify myself a little bit. And, you know, a lot of that is about how I how I feel about myself as a person, because the stakes of my personal donations are really low in the scheme of things. Yeah. 
Yeah, I guess we got a sneak peek of this earlier, but this is obviously a key uh, operating issue for OpenFill that you'd like to like to find more amazing grants, but you feel like you're finding it harder to scale up the giving as much as you'd like. What's the approach to, to fixing that? Yeah, I mean, r- right now we're in the, you know, midst of conversations with the Open Philanthropy long-termist team about like, you know, how do we kind of self-conceive? What's our comparative advantage? Because historically, you know, the way the obvious thing has been like, well, we help deploy capital. And I think that's still a lot of it. Like, I, I think actually a lot of how a lot of how open philanthropy is starting to think of ourselves as like, sure, there's a lot of obvious shovel-ready org- opportunities. There's a lot of well-known long-termist organizations that could use money. And even for them, I think we you know, we have some value to add because we can pay a lot of attention. We can help do the evaluation, set a signal for other funders, and you know, give feedback as an engaged funder, which I think is a good thing for an organization to have. But that, I mean, that leaves us with plenty of, of person hours left over. And then, you know, I think I think a ton of our grant making has actually been active in the sense that, you know, I don't think we would have been able to do it by just being known as people with money and waiting for people to come to us and ask for money. So some of that is about, you know, going into a space like biosecurity and pandemic preparedness and getting to know people who are not long termists who would never know to come to us, but who are doing relevant work on biosafety on, you know, whatever. Some of it is about just like determining that certain things are really important. It would be really great and kind of spreading the word and looking for someone working on them. And a lot of times we run into someone who who did want to do that, but we wouldn't have run into them unless we had pretty specifically said, you know, we're looking to fund X and Y. And, you know, some of it is like funding academics to do AI safety research. So there's a lot of active grant making we've done. It's it's a good chunk of what we've done. And so that is that is definitely a part of it. But I also think that, you know, I, want, I think every organization should be flexible about what their comparative advantage is, right? And 80,000 Hours launched and branded as a career research and advice organization, but a lot of what you guys have ended up doing is this, you know, promotion of important ideas and, and explaining of important ideas that I think is really great. Open Philanthropy, you know, we launched and branded as a capital allocator, but a lot of what we end up doing and a lot of what, you know, our staff are remarkable for is the more the more generic kind of thing of like, Here's a big, hairy question. It's a well-posed question. It's not us thinking of things no one's ever thought of, but it's it's a big, hairy question. We need an answer that is like as rigorous as we can make it in the time we've got, uh, but may not be as rigorous as, as one would imagine one would want it to be. And just kind of sorting through these, you know, these kind of hairy, open-ended questions in a way that leaves us with answers. And so where to give is kind of one of those questions. But we've also done a lot of this stuff about when is transformative AI going to be developed? What is the right probability distribution there? What are the premises that support a concern about misalignment risk? And I think there may be a lot more of that in our future, too. In terms of what the situation implies for someone who's 18, to me, it kind of suggests that it would be really valuable to try to, over time, over the next decade or possibly two decades, become the kind of person who someone would trust to give substantial amounts of money to, to like try to implement on a on a project that's related to AI or biosecurity or or whatever other long-termist priority. So it kind of fits with your views on how it's really important to build up an aptitude for, say, like managing people and starting projects and and being able to being able to deal with deal with funders. And even if you say at 2023 20, or 25 aren't able to, to receive a significant grant to, to build a project, perhaps that shouldn't be so demoralizing because that is just a, a pretty tall order, especially when you're early in your career. Yeah. So it's like it kind of is about the, the long term trajectory. And likely, if you can get to a place where you're where you're kicking ass at that sort of thing, then probably funding will be available, available to you. Definitely think that I definitely think that if you just go kick ass at something, and then you have, you know, you have a, a sensible plan that you need funding to make it happen. I think that that's going to be a pretty good bet to be making. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about whether it might be possible to find any sinkholes. We call them money pits. Yeah. Money pits. Okay, right. That uh, that help to further long-term goals. So I suppose a hypothetical example might be to say, 
climate change might not be the top long-termist priority, but it's like plausible. And we could just absorb so much money into say green energy, even just deploying solar panels, for example, to, to reduce climate change. Now that wouldn't be probably by our lights, the most effective thing to spend the money on at all. However, it does have a lot of potential to absorb money in a way that plausibly influences the, the future trajectory of humanity. Yeah. Do, do you have any hope that we might be able to find such uh, money pits <laughs> that, uh, that, that maybe look plausibly cost-effective? I think we certainly could find decent money pits if we wanted to. I think climate change, as you say, is definitely one of them. I think you could also spend a huge, if you wanted to just start buying, you know, biosurveillance or uh, medical countermeasure platform R&D for biorisk. I mean, you could start spending enormous, enormous amounts of money on that if you wanted to. And then there's the, you know, there's the points I raised about about AI and the question of, you know, at some at some point, this distinction between capital and labor kind of dissolves. I mean, that's a lot of what I argue in the most important century is how crazy things get when the distinction between labor and capital dissolves. And so then capital, you know, becomes no longer bottlenecked. So those are those are pretty good candidates. And of course, there's there's the other AI one, which is just that in the run up, you may may want to be doing very expensive compute heavy research. I, I don't know. You could kind of maybe that's a dissolve. Maybe it's not. So I think those money pits exist. I think the I think the thing is, like, does open fill? I mean, we've had a lot of conversations like, do we want that to be our thing? Do we want our thing to be finding the money pits? And, you know, probably at some point we do. But I also think that, like, maybe for now, what we should be doing is, you know, is answering fundamental questions, getting better best guesses on fundamental questions about things like the size of alignment risk, which we haven't really gotten very far on yet. And, you know, just a, a whole bunch of, of strategic questions about what kinds of things would actually make the world better. Because if we can reach more clarity on that, then I think we'll be in a much better position to identify the best money pits and the best individual projects to be funding and also to be encouraging people to do. I mean, I think at a certain point, you know, instead of just writing the checks, you know, we, we do have some kind of role in saying, here's what we'd like to fund. And I think that will shape, you know, potentially what people do, especially if it's based on good research. Okay, so one option is to try to get more people who are able to and interested in running the kind of boutique projects that you think are especially impactful. Another one would be to, to try to find something that maybe isn't quite as good as that, but does have a lot more ability to absorb tons of funding. And then I guess a third option, which you're saying is just like do research and hold into the money yep. and wait for it to, to uh, multiply because it's because uh, it's invested in, in some way. Yeah. How do you think about that third option of just holding off? I mean, I think it's fine in the, you know, for the time being. I mean, like, I, you know, my, mo- my model is kind of like, so I don't know. And we're figuring this out at Open Philanthropy. But I think it would be, be very non-crazy to just be saying, you know, we're figuring out fundamental questions that are helping determine what projects are most, most worthwhile. We're also funding things that we think can lead to exponential growth in grantees over time. So community building stuff, field building stuff, just like, you know, we'll spend amounts of money that may not be very large, but that they they're essentially getting a return. They're creating a field. They're they're causing there to be more giving opportunities later, and we'll do that for now. And we're not in a rush to get the money out the door to find a money pit because what's the rush? Because you know, because if we find a money pit in thirty years, you know, assuming that's not like too late for everything, you know, then then we can do it uh, then, and we'll have more money to do it with. So it's that is a, that is a perspective that seems like okay to me. That is a distinct perspective from the kind of you know, the kind of patient long-termist, like hold on to the capital sort of like essentially for everything. Like I don't endorse that. I'm kind of more just like, well, I don't, I don't see a ton to do right now. And, you know, it's okay if we, if we decide to shovel it all out in 20 years instead of right now. Yeah, I guess. So yeah, not only do you earn investment returns, but also hopefully you have accumulated wisdom and probably a larger research team and a lot more. (laughs) You will have fleshed out this worldview and critiqued it ever more, which uh, seems like it could, could produce pretty substantial returns. Yeah. So I think I think 20 years from now could be a lot better than now. I think it's it's very unlikely that 100 years from now or more is, is a good idea. Hmm. 
Yeah, I guess a downside that we kind of haven't ever mentioned of the of the holding off thing is just what if history passes you by and the most important moments in human history, <laughs> the ones that come this century, uh, do just happen before you manage to spend most of the money. That would be uh, somewhat regrettable. It would definitely it would be very regrettable. It'd be a risk. You just have to you have to weigh it. It's like you know, do I want to do I want to dump all this into biosecurity? Or do I want to take some chance that I just end up holding on to this and have nothing to do with it and some chance that I'm actually dumping it into AI at a crucial time? And it's like yeah. you have to run the expected value calc. Um, the very rough feeling in my head is actually just the second one is better. And so if you end up stuck and you didn't spend the money, well, you could feel bad. But I think the EV was the right it was the right call. Yeah. Another way that you might be able to try to find ways to spend the money really productively would be to find, I suppose, indicators in the in the world as it is now that are correlated with humanity's future prospects. I guess we've talked about it this uh, in various podcasts over the years, and sometimes it kind of goes under the banner of broad long-termism. So the idea would be it's hard to influence the world, perhaps through you know specific projects where you talk to specific people because just history is so unpredictable, like plans like that tend to go awry. Instead, what we should do is try to make the world richer or wiser or more capable at doing new new science when, when necessary. Try to improve capabilities or like broad aggregates like equality that we think are kind of signposts or guideposts to a positive future. They may be like not necessarily incredibly valuable in themselves, but nonetheless, in some way in future that will allow humanity to deal with the challenges of the future better. What do you think of that uh, kind of overall overall approach? I think it can be good. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sympathetic to like, I, th- I can't remember if Ajaya said this, and I think Alexander did, but just like, it's just super non-obvious that we've come up with anything in that category that's better than the global health and well-being stuff. So, you know, we make the world wiser. What does that mean? Wiser for what? Who's wiser? What are they wiser at? And which of those things are, you know, really scalable general things? And of those things, which of those, how sure are we that that's better than just making people richer or happier or, you know, or have longer, better lifespans? So, you know, I I don't think we've gotten there. I mean, I think I, I think we imaginably could get there. You know, the framework that I'm most into right now on a personal level is, hey, it could be the most important century. Let's premise everything on that. And so, If we're going to improve decision making, the reason we're improving decision making is because we want the most important century to go well. So we're interested in decisions made by people making technology policy about technology. It's not just some kind of totally generalized. We want everyone to make better decisions about everything, you know, and I'm I'm most into that framework. And I think some of the best stuff to do for the most important century could be in that category. But it's best if it's reasoned through that lens. What is this going to do for, you know, for our our handling of this transition then the, the framework I'm next most into is the global health and well-being framework, which is like, this is all too weird. We're getting too fancy. This is too much. Let's help people in kind of common sense, recognizable ways. And I, I do prefer both of those to this kind of, I don't know, this in-between middle ground that kind of says, you know, we're willing to throw out a lot of common sense and a lot of recognizable good because we have this kind of bold vision for the very long run, but we're ignoring this extremely important thing that just dominates the calculation of the long run because it's too out there or something. And I'm just like that. That's a weird I I kind of get it for people who somehow like trust philosophy a lot more than they trust empirics or something like people who are who are happy to be contrarian and bold and different and make a bet on a weird philosophical view versus a weird empirical view. But I'm I'm very much the opposite of that. Yeah, I, I think that's probably like one that I would rank third among the frameworks, although I think it's it's a perfectly fine thing to do. Yeah, in uh, the uh, previous episode with your colleague Alexander Berger, he threw some pretty serious shade on on broad long termism. Yeah, just to I guess briefly recap, his view was something like people come up with these aggregates, like how how wise or like how good is our government at making decisions, and he's like, like is that a real thing? Like, is that a real metric? How would you measure that? How would you know if you're if you're improving it? And also, people want to say 
these metrics that we're changing, these aggregates that we're changing should be expected to have some particularly important influence on the long run future. But the people who say this never really flesh out that story to like make it incredibly credible and vivid, like why that would especially be the case, or why it would be the case more than just making people richer and healthier in general, and then and then hoping that that improves society in a, in a broad way. So it's like, and at the same time, you pay this big cost of like doing something that's a lot harder to measure and not a lot harder to tell whether you're exactly. succeeding. Yeah, yeah, harder to measure. I think just more more risk of just deluding yourself and being in a weird made up headspace and castles in the air, which we have with the most important century too. I just think it's, you know, it's the, the upside is bigger of getting it right. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty sympathetic to that. Like I said, I don't think I've heard us get there yet with like broad aggregates that are better than just all the stuff that global health and well-being works on. We might get there, but I will also say that I just, I think once you're, once you're, out of Louis Armstrong, you know, classic, great, accessible jazz and into the avant-garde and you're, you know, now, now you're out, out of the, the accessible stuff and into the weird stuff. You know, I think it's I think it's time to look at the most important century. I think that kind of dominates the situation and is the right thing to think about. And so, you know, the, the middle ground to me is not that appealing, uh, you know, but I, I understand how some headspaces it could be. I'm not sure how problematic it is or, or how pessimistic we should be that we haven't yet kind of reached any consensus on aggregate metrics or guideposts that we could target that we think are strongly correlated with a positive future for humanity. Because as far as I know, I, like, I just don't know many people who've dedicated like actually years to thinking about this. And it seems like it's a, That's right. among the most difficult questions. So you really would want, but before you despaired on that, I think you'd want to put quite a few smart people on it for quite a bit of time and oh, then yeah. see what they could come up with. Uh, it more just seems like a, a research space that's a bit empty. Yeah, like I said, I don't I don't think it's hopeless. I, I think we haven't seen it yet. And that's not to say that there's no way to come up with a meaningful aggregate. I'm just like, but that project still doesn't seem as promising to me as just being like, well, why don't we work backwards from this incredibly important thing that could transform everything that's happening soon by galactic timeline standards? I will also say, like, I do I do see a very high level reason for pessimism on that, which is just, you know, you look at different fields and you look at what they're producing, different academic fields. And, you know, a common factor is like when you have a lot of data and there's a lot of independence, a lot of different independent trials, that's one thing. And you're able to, to learn a fair amount. And then when you just, you know, you have a field like macroeconomics where it's like there's a certain number of business cycles we have good data on. And we're just like going back over them and back over them, and back over them and overfitting and overfitting. And it's just like it's hard running, to get running very 7, far with regressions on 70. Yeah, exactly. 70 on the same yeah, few business cycles it's it's very hard to get very far with that and it's like you know i think if we start asking like so i one of the things that that i'm going to write about on my blog in the future is this question has the world gotten better over time and it's like when i imagine myself trying to come up with broad aggregates that are going to make the future go better i start thinking about like well historically what's made things go better and it's just like you're working with this tiny tiny sample you have like very little data from anything below before a few hundred years ago and you have kind of like, I don't know, three eras or something. You have like the, you know, the foraging era. You have the kind of like early agriculture. And then you have post-industrial revolution. I mean, obviously you could carve it up more than that if you wanted. But in terms of what you're able to say about how good life was, you know, you're, you're not working with a lot there. And so I don't know how you do it. Yeah, I mean, I guess you're not empirically forced to believe any particular story about what exactly was the right. underlying factor that was driving progress. So you, you kind of have to rely on intuitive you have to have to put a lot of weight on intuitive plausibility of the story. So much intuition. Like, someone yeah. says, "Yeah, it was like 18th century fashion that caused the industrial revolution." And you're like, "No, I, I don't think it was that." But if someone says, "Oh, it was the politics of England at the time and the Netherlands," then you'd be like, "Well, yeah. maybe I don't know." <laughs> There's so many things it could have been, and then and then it's like, and then what did that mean? It's like, it did was the industrial revolution even good? If if what we're talking about is the next you know 10 billion years, you're just you don't have a you don't have a lot of data to work with. I don't know where you get it. 
I guess maybe there's kind of an, an intermediate an intermediate approach in between the kind of most important century going to focus on these specific AI stories and the, and the broad one, which is something like what you were alluding to, which is we think that something as narrow as the quality of policy analysis on, sci- on governance of science and technology is going to be really important. So what we want to do is build a really high quality, like attract brilliant people into the field of policy analysis on, on science and technology. And then exactly. we'll be happy when there's lots of think tanks that produce a report that we're like really wowed by. That's broader than yeah, funding someone to do a specific kind of AI safety research, but then it's like much less broad than just trying to increase GDP. Yeah, I'm into that stuff. We do a lot of it at Open Philanthropy. We have grantees that are really aiming exactly that way. And, you know, I I mean, one one interesting thing is like if, if I were to try and go down this project of super broad long-termism and find, you know, find things that could make the world better, you know what I might do is I actually might just pretend or decide that we've only got five years or 10 years to transformative AI and just be like, what are we going to do? And then five years later, decide we have five years again, and five years later, decide we have five years again. And then at least I can start to track patterns in like, you know, what changed about my best guesses about what the world needs. And what are the patterns in that, which is a dicey thing to look for patterns in, but it's at least like, you know, at least you're kind of imagining these different ways the future could play out that are all immediate enough to give you some actual tangible things to talk about and argue about. And then you could come back and see what you've learned. Yeah. What about the proxy of not having utter buffoons as political leaders? Is, is that potentially yeah. important over the next five years? Seems super important. Seems like a man. Just seems like <laughs> right up there with ways to help the most important century go better. I mean, then that leaves the question of who are the buffoons. So yeah. I think any any reader is going to have their own views on that. Yeah. Are there any other proxies that are kind of in that in between between broad and narrow? Like you know, how impressive is the science and technology policy analysis community? There's there's a lot of stuff that I think is pretty good in that zone. You know, a big one that I think about is just, you know, who is in government, especially in science and technology policy related areas. And are those people who like just care about all of humanity, but, you know, also kind of can grapple, can be aware of of what some of the biggest considerations are and can think about them in kind of a, you know, in a way that's, I don't know, just just calm and reasoned and trying to get the best outcome for everyone and not falling into like memes of, you know, the U.S. has to show strength or else people will think we're weak and a bunch of stuff that I think just like doesn't really make a lot of sense, but can be common in certain communities. So that's something I'm that's something I'm just like generally very interested in. It's been a focus for us. You know, there's like international relations is like probably it's better if there's just like more cooperation internationally and more coordination that seems like, you know, when I think about the most important century and how it's going to go, that seems good. That would also be a good candidate for a really long run thing. But I think for the most important century, it looks really good. Yeah, I could I could probably I mean, I could probably go on like that for a while. I think the buffoons thing is if you're looking, I mean, if you're someone who's just like, I just need to do something and I'm not an AI person and I can't do any of the specific things you guys are talking about, but I just need to do something to help with the most important century. I mean, you know have your opinion on who the buffoons are because as a voter and as a you know person in the world i mean that's something anyone can participate in yeah from the most important century a worldview isn't it a little bit crazy that like i think 40 or 50% of the world's semiconductor manufacturing capacity happens to be concentrated on the island of taiwan which also yeah. happens to be the most probable flashpoint for a war between the like largest two superpowers on this planet i feel like in a science in a science fiction novel it would be a little <laughs> bit like on the nose if someone like wrote that in yeah, it's wild. I'm totally with you. Okay. Yeah, cool. I don't know if I have anything to add. I mean, <laughs> gosh, that's a that's a tough one. Yeah. And that that is definitely something to be thinking about. Yeah. Do you think that the United States might be able to over the next 10 or 20 years build a substantial domestic semiconductor manufacturing capacity? Yeah, I don't see why not if that was a goal of policymakers. I mean, I don't I don't think it appears to be right now and that's uh, that's an interesting thing. 
I don't know if it's something that that I'm hoping will happen. I mean, this is kind of the whole thing about strategic clarity in the most important century. Like it certainly certainly seems to matter a lot. I don't know what which direction it, it matters. Yeah. A regular listener wrote in and was curious to know where OpenPhil currently stands on its policy of not funding an individual organization too much or not being too large a share of, of their total funding. Because I think in the past you kind of had a rule of thumb that you were nervous about being the source of more than 50% of the revenue of a nonprofit. And this kind of meant that there was a, a niche where people who were earning to give could kind of effectively like provide the other 50% that OpenPhil was, was not willing to provide. Yeah, what's, what's the status of that whole situation? Well, it's always just been a nervousness thing. I mean, I've seen all kinds of weird stuff on the internet that people, I mean, games of telephone are intense. I mean, the, the way people can get, you know, one idea of what your policy is from like hearing something from someone. So I've I've seen some weird stuff about, it. oh, OpenPhil refuses to ever be more than 50% no matter what. And this is like becoming this huge bottleneck. And for every dollar you put in, it's another dollar. It's like, what? No, we're just nervous about it. We are more than 50% for like a lot of EA organizations. You know, I I think... It is good to not just have one funder. I think that's an unhealthy dynamic. And I do think there is some kind of multiplier for people donating to organizations. There absolutely is. And, and that's good. And you should donate to EA organizations if you want that multiplier. I don't think the multiplier is like one to one, but but I think there's something there. So, yeah, I, I think uh, I don't know. I don't know what other, what other questions you have on that, but it's a consideration. I mean, I think it's, it totally makes sense that you're reluctant to, to start approaching the 100% mark where an organization is completely yeah. dependent on you and they've formed no other relationships with potential backup supporters. They don't have to think about the opinions of anyone other than other than a few people at OpenPhil. That, that doesn't seem super healthy. Well, not, not only do they, I mean, it's like, it's a lack of accountability. It's also a lack of freedom. Like, I, I think it's it's an unhealthy relationship. It's like, they're worried that if they ever piss us off, they could lose it and they, they haven't built another fundraising base. They don't know what would happen next. And that just, made, that makes our relationship really not good. So it's, it's not preferred. It doesn't mean we can never do it. We're 95% sometimes. Yeah, it does seem like organizations should kind of reject that situation in almost any circumstance of becoming so dependent on a single funder that to some extent, they're just like, not only is the funder a supporter, but they're effectively like managing them or they're going to, you're going to be like so nervous about their opinions that you just have to treat them as though they were a line manager because you know so much more about the situation than, than the funder probably does. Otherwise, they would be running the organization. But Accepting that, so you're willing to fund more than 50% of an organization budget in principle. Yeah. But you get like more and more reluctant as, as you're approaching 100%. That does mean that there is kind of a, there's a space there for people to be like providing providing the with the gap between what you're willing to supply and, and 100%. So, I mean, maybe that is just like, that's potentially good news for people who wanted to take the earning to give route and were focused on long-termist organizations. Yeah, and I think I think the reason it's good news is the thing I said before, which is that it is good for there not to just be one dominant funder. So when you're when you're donating to EA organizations, you're helping them have a more diversified funding base. You're helping them not be only accountable to one group. And we want that to happen. And we also, you know, we do these fair share calculations sometimes. So we, you know, we'll kind of estimate how much long termist money is out there that would be kind of eligible to support a certain org. And then we'll pay like our share based on how much of that we are. And so often that's more like two thirds or has been more like two thirds than like 50 percent going forward it might fall a bunch. So, I mean, that that's the concept. And I would I would say it kind of collapses into the earlier reason I gave why earning to give can be beneficial. Yeah, another listener wrote in and wanted to ask you, are there any problem areas that you think the effective altruism community is overrating? You know, for me, we're not a huge community. So I would be I would be upset if we were all in on one cause, but I don't think we need to diversify a lot more than we are personally. I think cause X is a little bit overrated. Not that I think it's like a horrible idea. Not that I think we'll never find cause X. We should probably just uh, explain what cause X is. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about what cause X is. You want to explain it? 
Yeah, oh, I guess it's um, so cause X is this term for the idea that there could well be another problem in the world that we haven't identified or maybe nobody has identified as an important priority. So it could be like some kind of moral catastrophe that because we haven't yet reached a sufficient level of like moral understanding or, or maturity, we haven't yet realized is is going on. And and that working on that could be substantially better than all of the things that we're that we're currently aware of, which are necessarily less neglected than that. Yeah, exactly. Or, or another way I might put it is the EA community is very focused on a few causes right now. And maybe maybe what we should be focused on is finding another cause we haven't thought of yet that's an even bigger deal than all the causes we're thinking about now. And the argument goes like, you know, well, if no one had thought about this existential risk and AI stuff, then thinking of it would be by far the best thing you could do. And so maybe that's true again now. And so, I, you know, I get that argument and I certainly think it could be right. And I don't think the right amount of investment in this is zero. I also think we should just look at the situation and it's like, you know, you're kind of pulling causes out of an urn or something and you're seeing how good they are. And you're thinking about how much more investment in finding new causes is worth it. And it's like if the first three causes you pull out are all giving you the opportunity to, you know, let's say benefit 10 percent of the current global population if you do things right then you might think maybe there's a way to do a lot better than this. And then you pull out a cause that's like, well, this century, we're going to figure out what kind of civilization is going to tile the entire galaxy. Um, and it's like, okay, well, I think that drops the value of earn investment down a bit. Where right? else, where that else is, is that to exactly, go? <laughs> exactly. Where else are you going to go? And it's also neglected. So you've got importance and neglectedness off the charts. You've got a tractability problem. But that's exactly why, I mean, the kind of person who would be good at finding cause X, who finds these crazy things no one thought of, well, there's plenty of crazy things no one thought of that could be relevant to how that particular cause goes. There's all kinds of, there's so much room to be creative and find unknown unknowns about what kind of considerations could actually matter for how this potential transition to a galaxy-wide civilization plays out and what kinds of actions could affect it and how they could affect it. There's all kinds of like creative open-ended work to do. So I'm, I think it's better to invest in finding unexpected, you know, insights about how to help with this cause that we're all looking at that looks pretty damn big. I'm more excited about that than just looking for another cause. It's not not that I have some proof that there's no way another cause is better, but I think it's I think that investment is is a better place to look. Yeah. All right, let's move on and talk about open philanthropy for a bit. Yeah, first off the bat, what sort of job opportunities are there in the long-termist umbrella of of open phil maybe you know at the moment and potentially over the next year? Yeah. Um, so I think 80,000 hours often does a good job of just getting out what kinds of jobs are on at a given point. Uh, the open fill long term team is not really prioritizing hiring right now. That doesn't mean we're not doing any of it. But I do feel like I've said before, we have a kind of lack of strategic clarity. I think we need to be like small, improvisational and, you know, and hire pretty carefully and pretty conservatively. You know, there, there I do think that like organizations like, well, I think there's there's AI labs that you can go potentially do safety work at, you know, Anthropic, OpenAI, DeepMind, and Conflict of Interest Disclosure. My, my wife is president of Anthropic, my wife, Daniela. So uh, there's a program that, that I think will be up by the time this podcast is up. It's going to be a, a technology policy fellowship, and it's for people who basically want to work in U.S. policy areas, working on high-priority emerging technologies, especially AI and biotechnology so I think if that sounds like you, if you want to work on like policy for these kinds of things in the U.S., I would definitely encourage applying to that. And I think we should put a link for that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll stick up a link to, to all of these things. And then I'll also add just the, the global health and well-being team, on the other hand, is definitely hiring. And I think those are just phenomenal jobs doing phenomenally important work that are, you know, looking to deploy a ton of capital into, you know, stuff that helps improve quality of life for people and animals. So I'm sure there'll be a link. And I think Alexander talked about it, too. But I really want to plug that because that's the search we're doing. 
Yeah, so, so that was the program lead for the uh, South Asia pollution was one. So working on, I guess, particular pollution in India is a, what would be one way of putting it. Then there was someone to work on kind of policy around foreign aid, a lead on grant making in that area. Uh, and then I think there were a couple of generalist research roles and potentially there was a vision that those people would work on problem prioritization and potentially trying to find, you know, other problem areas that the global health and wellbeing team would want to move into. Yeah, and also do some grant making. One of the generalist roles is like a generalist grant maker role, which I think is pretty cool. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we'll stick up a, a link to those if they're still open when uh, when this episode comes out. What's a grant that you've been involved with since we last spoke in 2017 that you're especially proud of or maybe has, a, has really exceeded expectations? I'll name a couple of them. One of them is the Center for Security and Emerging Technologies, CSET. So that is a think tank started by Jason Matheny, who's now in government, and they do high quality analysis to inform policymakers on important technologies. You know, that was a group that we we were really excited to fund because we think Jason is great. And, you know, we've been really happy with how things have gone. They've done analysis we think is really good on topics like what the U.S. semiconductor export control policy should be. You know, we've found it like just very much more high quality than other analysis on similar topics. They've helped debunk what I think were some kind of paranoid views of the national security community about China. And, you know, they've hired a number of people who I think are very dedicated to helping the long term future go well, understand, I think, what the stakes are and what some of the major risk factors are better than a lot of other people in the national security community. And that includes some people who have recently gone into government and are now helping with policy related to AI and semiconductors and so on. And the final thing that's really exciting is that, you know, Jason has gone into government, but we believe the new director, Dewey Murdoch, is really good and CSET is going to stay strong. And, you know, there's nothing more exciting for me than kind of seeing something get off the ground, but then be able to have its own momentum and, you know, and become this kind of force on its own. So, uh, you know, we think CSET is going to be giving good data-driven advice on technology policy and serving as a great place for people to learn about these issues and end up in a position to make policy on them better. And it's one of the top places I'd recommend working if you're interested in helping the long run future go better. So that, that's CSET. And that was a major grant. That was uh, over $50 million. Yeah. Yeah. CSET seems like they're, they're really kicking us. So uh, congrats to those guys. And it's great they've managed to uh, have, a, have a handover at the top. That, that's gone well, because that, be, that can be really hard. What's, uh, yeah, what's another one? And the congrats is, is mostly to CSET, you know, yeah. so, so we're really glad we funded it. But always with open philanthropy, I, I think of us as getting a little slice of the impact equity for someone and, and most of the work and most of the credit is theirs. You know, another one, I mean, so that the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, we were all kind of kind of just amazed that there were no human challenge trials going on. So what I mean by this is that, you know, they were they were testing these vaccines by just vaccinating people and then kind of waiting for them to get COVID. And especially, I mean, before we hit the winter with the lockdowns, there was COVID rates were actually quite low in a lot of places they were running these tests. So it was going to take forever. And we were all kind of like, why aren't they taking volunteers? And the story was that it's, you know, it's unethical to take volunteers because we didn't have a cure. And we, we were thinking it's unethical to let a pandemic go on a couple of months and give extra time for nastier variants to emerge. And, uh, you know, there's this group one day sooner that was essentially a collection of people who wanted to volunteer in human challenge trials. And they were they were doing kind of like advocacy on behalf of people who wanted to be volunteers and want to take this kind of risk. And I think that was a that was a really cool thing, you know, a different angle that I think had a chance to really change the debate about human challenge trials and speed the end of the pandemic. And, you know, it was funny because they wanted money and it was like, we had one person working on our COVID grant making who was just too slammed and was swamped. And then we had Alexander who was about to go out on parental leave. And I just, I couldn't handle the idea that we wouldn't do this. And, and so I just, I was the grant investigator, which was. You got back in the trenches. 
I did. I, I you know, I almost never do a grant write up, but I, I occasionally like to do it. I think it's good for me to follow the process. Notice if the process is screwy in some way, you know, dog fooding. So it wasn't a terrible thing, but it was it was an unusual thing for me to do was to just go ahead and like do a grant write up and submit it for approval. I mean, I think they changed the conversation about human challenge trials, and I think they played a major role in the fact that eventually a human challenge trial was approved. And the timing hasn't worked out partly because the rates went up a lot and the vaccines were really effective between those two things. The normal trials went really fast. But gosh, like that was about a million dollars that I am really, I mean, just feel great about having spent because there's a bunch of nearby alternative universes where we might have shaved a month or more off the pandemic. And in addition to all the lives and costs saved, I mean, that could have cut down on some of the some of the variants we're looking at now. So, gosh, I I, I like the grant. Yeah. People can go and uh, check out check out that group, and I guess I, I imagine they have some some research policy papers discussing the, yeah. the the benefits you can get from human challenge trials, and they're they're one day sooner. I mean, from one point of view, it doesn't seem like it's made a huge contribution to speeding the end of the COVID pandemic now, but it seems like creating a precedent and creating a system by which we would do human challenge trials in future when when it was called for seems incredibly valuable because you know, for example, we could be running a human challenge trial right now to figure out whether you know, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines work basically as well if you uh, give people half as large a dose. And there's pretty good observational evidence or there's some some strong clues that suggest that even if you would give people a substantially smaller dose of the vaccine, it works almost exactly equally as well. In which case, we would have doubled the supply of mRNA vaccines. And, you know, you could do that through a traditional trial. Uh, That probably, I guess, at the current case rates, which are really quite high in the UK, maybe you could get an answer quite quickly, but you would be able to do it even faster, definitely using using a human challenge trial. That's right. So anyway, there's lots of more specific questions you can get about, like, how should we do the rollout? What's the optimal spacing? Which vaccines work better against what variants? And so on that where human challenge trials are still very relevant and they could definitely be relevant, like incredibly valuable the next time we have a completely new pandemic. Yeah, I agree with all that. In fact, uh, we're, you know, we, we might end up funding more to, you know, to kind of look to the future. It's a great group and I remain really excited about it. I think we may well end up feeling that that grant was a success, but even <laughs> if it wasn't, I'm glad we made it. Yeah. Well, th- this was a broad COVID intervention that worked out in an unanticipated way where uh, <laughs> we've been targeting the proxy for the future, right, which right, is right. like human, <laughs> our ability to infect people with diseases <laughs> during pandemics. <laughs> I do. I do think sometimes the best way to do a broad intervention is to, is to just do a specific intervention for the thing you think is the most likely, and then just yeah. keep doing that and kind of find the patterns. Yeah. So those kinds of projects that go really well that you're like proud of and excited by like CSAT, like one day sooner, are they often close calls where you're like, you're not sure ahead of time whether you want to, whether you want to fund them or do they kind of often, often stand out ex ante before you've made the grant? I would say as a general pattern that the best, you know, it's like, it's like there's a definitely correlation between how easy a call something was and how good it was. I mean, CSAT mm-hmm. was, you know, we were very excited from the beginning and it was a high priority from the beginning and it was a big bet, but we were never, we were not on the fence about CSAT. You know, but I mean, you know, one day sooner might be kind of an example in the sense of like, we definitely thought it was awesome. We definitely thought it was the right kind of thing to do. But we also, you know, we have priorities and we need to focus on what we're focused on. And, you know, we didn't want to get derailed too much. And so, Mm. you know, in that sense, I mean, the fact that I was doing the grant investigation is kind of an indicator because, you know, it would have been, I think, reasonable for me to just say, you know, this is cool, but no. And then I don't know if we would have found the staff time or not. So, You know, I'd also say, like, there's different phases of grants. So we try to have a much looser trigger finger with smaller, earlier stage grants. And I think there's plenty of grants we give out, like through our scholarship programs. We have a whole bunch of scholarship programs, like a generalist long-term is one, a biological risk one. I've I've mentioned one that's going to be about technology policy. And we have a lot of those. And, uh, you know, a lot of times we are 
giving away relatively small amounts of money, like maybe maybe you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, to people that we think are cool, but we ha- we haven't like thought it through in an incredible amount of detail. And it's the bigger grants where you know where generally we need to to really feel great about it. And I think they're, those are less likely to be borderline. Yeah. I wonder whether Open Field needs to have an exasperation-based philanthropy uh, project where it's things like things like with One Day Sooner or other cases where a member of the team is just looking out at the world and is just like so frustrated, so angry, so, so irritated yeah. that that humanity or, or a country is getting something so incredibly wrong that there's like, I have to make a grant. Maybe that could be a useful outlet that then allows you to be more rational about, uh, about, the, about the other grants. Possibly. I mean, I think it was interesting with COVID because COVID hit and it was I was very disoriented. I was kind of like, on one hand, I was like, well, you know, I see all these seeming opportunities. And on the other hand, I was like, but everyone is paying attention to this and just didn't know when we look back if we would feel that it was like the best or the worst place to get involved. And I think I think as it turns out, it was actually like I think everything was moving so fast that there were opportunities to help in ways that were not going to get done otherwise. So I think it was probably if I were going back, we would have put a little bit more time and a little bit more money into it, even though you know, maybe that should have been on the global health and well-being side because I don't think that the long-termist implications were like super clear. Yeah. Has COVID given you any other important updates on how the the bio-risk portfolio is panning out? On the bio-risk portfolio, so in some ways I would say COVID has not given us huge updates on the bio-risk portfolio because the bio-risk portfolio is focused on even worse cases than COVID. And so, you know, even when COVID hit, a lot of the response grant making was not even led by our biosecurity team. It was just led by the science team or by someone else. So in some ways, no, you know, I would say that it, yeah, I think we're in the midst of trying to understand. We did support a bunch of like generalized biosecurity infrastructure for years leading up to the pandemic. And I think in theory, that's a kind of broad intervention that you would hope really helped. And I think we're still trying to kind of nail that down a little bit and understand, you know, did that help? And that is that is something that I think we're it's it's hard. It takes a long time sometimes to figure out, you know, did someone actually make an impact and did someone make a difference? But I think that's something we could look at is like when you're just supporting. So there's some work we do that's very targeted at the worst case. And there's some work we do where just kind of this, you know, supporting leg of the biosecurity infrastructure groups like Center for Health Security. And I think we're kind of TBD on that. Yeah. Has COVID maybe changed any of the opportunities that are available for, for things to fund? Because I'm imagining that there's more people interested in entering this, entering this space. So maybe that they're, they're out there looking for funding for new and exciting projects. Yeah, there's a lot more interest in virus than there used to be. And people are thinking bigger about how bad it could be. So those are things that, you know, I think could, could be positive. You know, definitely there has been some effort among our grantees and at OpenPhil to think about, you know, at some point there's going to be a bunch of attempts in the U.S. government to do things to prevent the next COVID pandemic, to be better prepared. And can we try to make sure that people have good advice on how not only to prepare for the next coronavirus or the next thing that's exactly like COVID, which I think is, you know, maybe kind of the default you would expect, but also to prepare for things that could be much, much worse and to do things that are very general that could prevent a lot of bad things. So like, you know, more widespread biosurveillance, such as metagenomic sequencing, where you, you make it kind of a regular practice to just look for unfamiliar genetic sequences in people. You know, or biohardening, where you just generally try to have more areas or more equipment that could make us immune to whatever the heck pathogen is floating around. And these things, I think, could, you know, could make us more robust to things that are that are worse than COVID instead of just, you know, everything being about everything about how do we prevent the next COVID. So that's something we've been thinking about. Okay, let's go through a couple of questions from the audience. Yeah, someone wrote in and said, if Holden could found an EA org again today, that would take such a central position in the effective altruistic ecosystem as GiveWell or OpenPhil. What would it work on and what might it do? Sure. So 
I think I'm I'm generally interested in tackling like questions that are important but kind of fuzzy and hard to get started on and hard to get a rigorous feeling answer to. And already OpenPhil has been putting more time into that than maybe like an average grant maker would. So things like AI timelines. I think if I were to pick out like one, if I just like cloned myself now and I were to pick out one distinctive thing that the new organization would focus on that OpenPhil doesn't really do that much of, it would be uh, the AI deployment problem is what Luke and I call it. So there's the AI alignment problem, which is how do you design an AI that even though it's smarter than you or, you know, whatever, even though it's more capable than you, even though it can do a lot of things and think of a lot of things that you can't, it's still kind of like helping you instead of going out and doing whatever its own crazy thing is that you hadn't meant it to do at all. And that's an AI alignment problem. And that's a technical problem. And the AI deployment problem is more of a kind of like, you know, a social, a sociopolitical problem, which is, hey, you're a lab or a government and you're on the cusp of an AI that could be really powerful, could lead to really good or really bad things happening. And there's a lot you don't know. Like you're sitting in a state of uncertainty. You're not sure how safe it is. You're not sure how much safer you can make it. You're not sure about a lot of things. And it's like, what do you do? Like you have this system. Do you put it out as fast as you can? Because there's probably someone else behind you who's going to be less careful than you and put it out in a worse way. Do you hold on to it because you're not sure if you can make it, you know, more safe and more aligned? If you are putting it out in the world, how do you do that? Who do you talk to? You know, if you want to partner with government, how do you approach the government? And what do you want them to do with it? And it's like, how do you want this all to play out? And there's there's a lot of different versions of this. And I think the only real the only real way to think about this problem is to go through like a large number of scenarios, each of which is way too specific to ever actually be realistic and think about how you would want an AI lab or a government to behave, what you would want them to do with their like maybe aligned, maybe not aligned AI in that world. Or or maybe you could go through scenarios where it's definitely aligned or you could go through scenarios where it might be aligned, but it's probably not. And, you know, I think that's something that like basically Luke Milhauser and I have been talking about for years and we've tried to get people to kind of think about it and work on it. And we really have not been able to get people to think about it. I think it's just one of these hairy, scary problems. You feel kind of crazy when you're thinking about it because you're like writing down all these future scenarios. They're all too specific to be realistic. So it's a psychologically hard problem to think about and work on. But I think if I had a clone of myself, the clone would like would do this all day and would eventually get to the point where this problem that started off being just too much and too weird had become kind of a a set of closed ended questions and a set of methodologies. And that clone could start hiring people and training them to help with it in a way that was like more tractable. And so that that's something I would do. And if someone else was going to do that, I'd be really happy about it. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that sounds exactly right. Is it possible to get kind of a broad sense of how how your time is allocated these days between, you know, looking into specific problems or uh, organizations and like managing people and having a broad vision and, and things like that? So it's very different. I'm at a point of transition right now where the way I use my time is changing a ton. So I had been working a lot on the reorganization and getting to the state where we have two co-CEOs and two kind of divisions of open philanthropy, and I can focus on long-termism. And looking forward, so first off, I'm, I'm by the time this goes up, I'll be on parental leave. And so, you know, I'm going to have a, a, a good chance to kind of reflect and really think about what do I want to be doing with my time? Because I, a lot of responsibilities I used to have, I, I'm not going to have anymore. And then, you know, when I look forward, I mean, I, I'm not sure, but one thing I've considered actually is is just trying to take like a year or something where I spend more than half my time just thinking about either the AI alignment problem or the AI deployment problem. Probably more likely the alignment problem, actually, because it's so it's so fundamental 
when you think about, you know, how to make the most important century go well and what kind, you know, what kind of community we're trying to build questions like how serious is the AI alignment problem? How hard is it going to be to solve? What kind of person is going to be best at solving it? What kind of research is going to be most promising and how are we going to find people and fund people to do that research? Those are so important that I almost feel like, you know, spending a year trying to solve it myself, not that I would solve it, but that, you know, that experience of trying to do that, I think could, could put me in a much better position to, lead a team that is trying to prioritize these very hard to prioritize interventions and decide what the best kind of active grant making to push is. So that's something I've been thinking about. It's only a possibility. Another listener wrote in, um, say, even though OpenPhil isn't isn't trying to do this, it's surely like the opinions of OpenPhil staff surely has a pretty big influence over what long-termist oriented organizations decide, what projects they decide to take on, because they might be interested in you know applying for OpenPhil funding in future, or at least or keeping keeping the funding that they have. I guess, yeah, there's a couple of things one could ask about this. I suppose first one is like, to what extent is that a good or bad thing? Presumably it's like it has some pros and has some cons. Yeah, pros and cons. I mean, <laughs> um, I think it's fundamentally like it, it's it's a fundamentally healthy part of the ecosystem that organizations have to raise money and their funders, you know, do care about some stuff. But it's like you have to have good taste. And, you know, it's it's very dangerous. You can you can easily unwittingly micromanage grantees who know more about their work than you do. And our grantees all know about more about their work than we do. So we need to be very selective and very careful in what we kind of insist on, what we kind of express an opinion on, what we're kind of thinking to ourselves but express no opinion on, because I think sometimes there's no way to express an opinion to a grantee without influencing their behavior. Sometimes you just need to shut up. So, you know, I think I think that's just a tough balance. And I think we try to build an organization that is full of people who are really bright and who have thought through a lot of the relevant issues and have seen a lot and can approach those trade-offs with wisdom. And, you know, I could give some principles about what kinds of things we would generally insist on versus nudge versus just keep to ourselves. But it's, you know, the main answer is it's hard. I don't wish we just lived in a world where where these conversations didn't happen at all, but it is hard and it's easy to screw up. Yeah, so it sounds like, you potentially don't share all of your opinions where you think this opinion is too tentative, but if we say something, then then they might just like reorient their whole whole damn thing around yeah, exactly. like a, a just a guess that I have. Do you take any other steps to avoid potentially over-influencing grantees when you have like much less local knowledge uh, about their work than they do? Well, we just, it's always, you know, all grantee feedback is seen as a high stakes thing. So there's always a discussion about like, is it better to share this feedback or not? And what do we know about this grantee? Do we think they're going to like take this and run with it and put too much weight on it? Or do we think they're going to, you know, and then we talk about how to phrase it in a way that's, you know, makes it clear that it's just a suggestion or makes it clear they can ignore it or, you know, shows a lot of uncertainty on our part. So we do, you know, we do try to do that. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's just it's just a matter of being clear about what about the strength of our opinions. And at the same time, we will insist on stuff sometimes. I mean, I think a general a general thing that we are very uncompromising about is that when we fund someone, we know we're funding people. We know we're making a bet on people. And so we need to understand when we fund someone who's in charge, who's in charge of how this money gets spent and who are they and how do we feel about them? And, you know, a thing we will insist is that whoever we're supporting, they're the one who's in charge of how the money gets spent. And so that often leads to, you know, some hardcore negotiations where, because a lot of times we'll support, let's say someone at a university and the university will want to say, well, this is our money. We're going to, we're, <laughs> we're ultimately in charge of this. We'll say, no, it's not, you know, and we'll have things like key person provisions that say, well, 
you know, we're supporting this organization, but if such and such a person leaves, we are out of our obligations. We don't owe any more money and we're renegotiating and we'll renegotiate on the basis of who the new person is. So, you know, I think once we've picked a person or a team that we're betting on, we're much more deferential and we're trying to not micromanage because we don't, the whole bet is who, who are we betting on? But we got to make sure we're betting on who we think we're betting on. And so questions like governance and authority, you know, those can, those can be areas where we, we draw very hard lines. And, yeah. and that's something we have learned from experience. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense where you have a, a big organization where there's, you know, a particular team or a person or a project that you're very excited by, but a lot of the rest of it, you don't have any particular enthusiasm about. You could imagine yeah. the, the money being like siphoned away towards something else. I could imagine that those conversations could get a little bit awkward or a little bit, a little bit testy at times. Is that, yeah, is that, is that about right? Yeah, yeah. We have tough hardball negotiations sometimes. So, and that's, that's a tough thing about this, you know, the kind of grant making we're doing is like, I can't give you these like hard and fast rules. We see a lot of things. We have to form judgments and, you know, our involvement ranges from everything from here's your money. We're deliberately not telling you any opinions. We just don't want to interfere and like go have fun to, you know, no, we, we need a contract and we need all the lawyers all over this stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess for those negotiations, you have to kind of be willing to walk away and say, no, if, if this larger organization, a university, say, isn't willing to give this, you know, principal investigator on this project enough enough freedom to actually actually use the resources that we're trying to direct to them, then we are going to walk away and maybe we'll fund them at a different organization or through some different vehicle because I guess yeah, we have the ability to do that. Yeah. So, Yeah, that can be on the table. Yeah. One of the things that I think is is hard to do but is worth it is to have people who are doing the grant investigations, program officers, who just are well-connected in the relevant communities and have good relationships with grantees. And the better a relationship you have, the more you can have kind of frank conversations and share your ideas without it turning into this toxic dynamic of everything you say is interpreted as an order. So, you know, a lot of the questions about, you know, how much to share our opinions with someone, how much to nudge, how much to criticize, a lot of that is like, what is our relationship with this person or with this team? And do we feel that they, you know, can have a healthy conversation with us? And if we don't feel that, then we need to understand that whatever we tell them they're going to take is kind of a demand. And sometimes that's okay, but, you know, but we need to think about that. You know, another area where we can be kind of pushed is like cause focus. So I think sometimes there'll be a person who, you know, they're interested in all aspects of an issue and we're interested in one aspect of it. A very important example would be animals where you might work with, you know, someone who's interested in endangered species and farm animal welfare. And for us, by the numbers, the farm animal welfare is what matters. And so that's another place where we can be pretty pushy about saying, you know, we want to make sure that we've got a focus on the issue we care about. Historically, I think we've been less successful with that. I mean, I think when I look back and I think about like, what do we want to be doing? What kind of advice do we want to be giving? And what kind of things do we want to be negotiating for? I think really, really important to make sure the right person is there and that they're really in charge and that they're empowered. And we'll just go as hardcore as we need to on that. And then beyond that, you know, Everything from there, I think, should be just a friendly discussion with the person. And the better relationship we have, the more we can share our opinions. But it's got to be up to them. And further efforts to manage their activities, I think, are, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I'm not excited about them. Yeah. I suppose to take the position of, you know, these broader organizations that have a broader, like more plural set of goals. To some extent, you're coming to them and saying, you know, we want to create this child within within your organization. And we like, in a sense, want to have more control over it than, than you do. Or we want to put someone in there who's going to be able to manage it and be well, resistant. Sometimes to... the child's already there and we just want to fund it. I mean, sometimes okay, there's yeah. a farm animal welfare team within an animal, a general animal organization. We just say we want to fund these people. But then we have to make sure that those are the people we're funding. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Does the attitude ever come up that, you know, we've created this broader ecosystem or this broader organization that now is fostering this thing that you're very excited by? So it seems reasonable that some amount of resources should be kicked back to the to the broader project that then created this thing that you're excited by. So, you know, maybe there's an 80-20 split or a 90-10 split. 
Sure. And that's part of the negotiation. I mean, we, we will we will we want to be fair and we want to pay our share. I think, you know, we also are th- looking at the general financial state of the organization. And sometimes it just doesn't seem necessary or good to be paying a lot of overhead. But we do we do absolutely want to pay our share to the larger umbrella. But we also want to make sure that our main bet is the bet that we want it to be, which is on a particular team. Yeah. Do I remember reading or, or hearing that the Gates Foundation had recently come to the conclusion that too much of their grant money was being skimmed off by universities for just general revenue. And, and they, I think they I think they may have said, oh, yeah, we're not willing to pay more than 10%. 10% is the, the max. And if, if you want more than that, sorry, we, we're just going to go fund these people somewhere else. Well, we do have that exact policy when it comes oh. to universities. And, and having having one clear policy that's public and consistent and that you never compromise on is is important for having that policy be actually enforced. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a university is a good example. So, you know, this, this is a common debate in, in the in the philanthropy world is someone will say, you know, well, you really should just give general operating support, not project support, because project support like, you know, it's it's like you're micromanaging and it's going to screw over these organizations. And then, you know, and what you really you want to be supporting leadership, not like trying to run it yourself. And I'll say, I agree with all the principles. I agree with all the basic ideas there. But actually, we want to support particular leadership and we need to make sure we're supporting the leadership we think we're supporting. And a lot of times that is exactly project support. But what's important is that the project support says this is for these people to use. This money is for these people to do whatever they want with. It's not saying this is for these people to do these activities. And so that's a distinction that I think can get a little confused in the philanthropy world. And then this other topic comes up where people say, well, you, you're going to bankrupt, you know, the poor umbrella organization. Like they're just, it's all projects and they're not going to be able to keep the lights on. And I'm like, what if the umbrella organization is Harvard University? Yeah. Like, come on. Like, <laughs> you know, these most, most of the university grants we make. I mean, no, I, I am not. I don't actually. I, I think I would like to just minimize the overhead given yeah. to these incredibly endowed universities. Yeah. The, the $100 billion endowment has fallen on hard times. But yeah, you, exactly. You, yeah. You you can help a fund manager for just a yeah. billion dollars a day. <laughs> exactly. All right. Let's switch on from talking about open fill to a section for which header I've written grab bag question section. So this is okay. a kind of a whole lot of different fun stuff that, that I wanted to bring up, but I couldn't I couldn't really uh, build into any 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 cohesive series of questions. Yeah. What other what other interesting things are you writing about at the moment? Might might you publish some blog posts on on cold takes? Yeah, yeah. So I, I generally this uh, this blog that that I'm going to have cold takes. I mean, it's called cold takes because I tend to just write stuff like way, 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 way in advance. I don't like I don't want deadlines on blogging because I I, I have too much professional responsibility that I don't want it to be competing with that. And so you know, there's there's a lot of stuff that I've basically drafted and and I just need to you know need to clean it up and get it out there. So one major topic I'm going to write about is this question of. Has life gotten better over the course of history? And this is, you know, maybe something listeners are thinking, What that, that's already been done. There's book on it. You know, there's all this stuff. There's our world and data. The problem with this existing content on whether life has gotten better, I would summarize the problem is the x-axis. So, the, you know, people will put up a chart that says, oh, people are getting more anxious. And the chart goes back to like 2006. People put up a chart that says, you know, hey, you know, lifespans are increasing. And the chart goes back to like 1800. You know, it just it, it's. <laughs> All over the place. I think I think it is very hard to get one unified picture of has life gotten better and over what time periods and you know how does that fit into the broad scope of history and actually the way that I would that the way that I would put it so the book Enlightenment now is mostly about the period after the Industrial Revolution after the Enlightenment so that's the last like two three hundred years and that's basically where all the data is so if you go on our world and data almost every chart is going back you know at most two or three hundred years often often going back like less than one hundred years. And that's one phase that you can talk about whether life's gotten better. Then there's like, you know, the phase before that when there's like almost no data 
that you can go back from there to the beginning of human civilization and try to make some inferences about whether life has gotten better. And then there's the phase before that, which is millions of years, which is the, you know, what people would call the foraging era, the pre-agriculture era. And there it's like, there's, you know, I have seen and heard and Googled hypotheses that actually that was the best era that, you know, <laughs> that, that people were moving around in small bands. They were very egalitarian. They treated each other really well. There was no hierarchy and actually they were healthier than you would think. And this is stuff that I've heard that I think is somewhat true, but I think is, you know, probably overstated. And I think my, my overall take is that is that the, the modern world is probably better than the foraging world, but it, it's a thing you could debate. And the foraging world may well have been better than the, the, the world that came between that world and this world. So, you know, those are the different eras. There's millions of years of foraging, or maybe it was foraging. We don't really know. Then, the, you know, then there was thousands of years of post-agriculture, and then there was like a couple hundred years of post-industrial revolution. These are, I think it's time to like disentangle this, put it in one place and say, what do we know about whether the world has gotten better in each of those different eras? Yeah. So that that's one thing that I'm, I'm still working out exactly how to get all the pieces together, but that's something I've been working on. Yeah. Do you have any uh, tentative conclusions or it's too early to say? I, I definitely do have tentative conclusions. I think if I were to draw the chart, it would be kind of this like flat, wavy and unsure line for millions of years during pre-agriculture. And then it would go down a bit post-agriculture and stay flat for a long time. And then it would kind of rocket up after the Industrial Revolution. And I would agree with the Enlightenment Now hypothesis there. And I would think the modern world is the best it's been so far. But it is a much it's a more complicated story than, gosh, you know, things just get better all the time and technology makes things better all the time because it's it's a phase. It's a temporary phase. And it's like we just took off on this rocket ship. And so I think it is a little bit less conducive to the, you know, let's not plan things out too much. Let's uh, let's just make more technology and a little bit more conducive to the crap. Human history is a mess and it's chaos and we should think about what's coming next. Yeah. Are there any uh, particularly interesting things you've learned about about history that people don't appreciate that we're sharing? Yeah, sure. Um, so another another thing that's very related to the series, but uh, years ago I did this I did this so, somewhat crazy project where I just wrote down a summary of human history, which is, just sounds like this ridiculous thing to do. That's you know you could you could call it arrogant or whatever. I mean, but it's not it's not that I actually think that I know what happened or or that I'm a history history expert. I'm not. It was that I was I was just trying to learn and I was trying to educate myself and say you know for me the best way of learning is to write down what I think. And then kind of fill it in and look for look for kind of like high benefit, low cost ways to correct it and learn more. And so I actually just like I took like all these different categories. I took like, you know, all the different sciences and I took things like uh, gender relations, gender equality and, you know, basically like rights for LGBTQ and, um, you know, just all, all the things that I kind of thought would be good to understand if they had gotten better or worse or what had happened to them. And I kind of made this big matrix where I listed, yeah, I listed all these things that could be changing and I listed all these periods and I tried to like, I, I was really just spending like hours and hours and hours and hours just Googling instead of reading history books. I read history books too. And so, you know, and then, and then I ended up having this 15 page, like, well, here's, here's what's happened. Here's, here's the summary. And then I have this kind of like big spreadsheet. So, you know, in the process of doing that, I picked up a lot of intuitions. I think that was a project. It was a personal time project, but it started to help me take a lot of this AI stuff more seriously because it was giving me the sense of just how, how wild our history is and how much more has happened in the last couple hundred years than everything before it in many senses on many axes and just how anything can change. You know, but it's at the same time, I don't think history is a list of random events. I think there are these like eras that some are much more significant than others. So, you know, in the, in the process of, of doing that, 
Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we were we were talking about this before the podcast, and I did notice some things that I thought were like really cool historical people or events that don't get a ton of attention. So I could I could give a few of them if you want. Yeah, hit hit us. Okay, sure. Yeah, so I can I can just name a few. I mean, Deng Xiaoping took over in China in the 1970s after Mao died, and you know he chose. I mean, I I feel like I feel like different leaders would have done different things, and he chose to go down the road of economic reforms that kicked off decades of unprecedented growth and poverty reduction. So I mean. That could be the most poverty reduction any individual has ever been responsible for, especially if you look at what have happened if if he had somehow just not been around. Might be kind of the the, the person who's had the most positive impact ever to date. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, he was sent off to prison camps, I think, more than once when he fell out of favor with Mao. So it's it's not that hard to imagine that he might have not, yeah, been, yeah, not exactly. been in the political scene or indeed may not have been on this earth by that yeah, stage. Yeah, there's probably, there's probably a nearby world where just, you know, things didn't work out for Deng, they worked out for someone else. And everyone is like, so not everyone, but a lot of people are so much worse, worse off. So I think that, you know, we don't hear his name a lot. But gosh, I mean, what a what a, you know, person who made a big difference. Yeah, I, I read some of an of a biography of of Deng last year, and one thing I think might be worth noting because I've heard this thing of Deng Xiaoping changed a lot of stuff was I think he was chosen in part because this much broader coalition, this much broader group of people who were influential within the Communist Party within Chinese society as a whole, were fed up with Mao, or they were fed right. up with what had been happening in the last few decades, and so they promoted him and they like voted to make him the the premier. So I suppose. I guess, as with all of these things, it's like Deng was enabled by the fact that there was a, you know, 55-45 split within the Communist Party on like, we should yeah. modernize, we should, we should, uh, we should go lighter on the communism for a bit. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, though, I mean, again, it's like, maybe eight out of 10 people they would have picked would have would have yeah. done exactly what he did. And maybe two out of 10 would have just been like, well, I'm in charge now. Screw this. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I think I think that's an interesting one. Paul Ehrlich was like, you know, not the author of The Population Bomb, uh, a person who was around the turn of the 20th century, was a chemist who just, as far as I can tell, like really just invented the whole framework that we use for drug development today. So there was this known thing that when you put a clothing dye into a sample under a microscope, it would stain some things and not others. And that made it easier to see. And he thought of the application of drugs where he said, well, wait, you can have a chemical that binds to certain things and not others. Maybe you could have, you know, a toxin and you attach it to something that binds only to the things you're trying to kill, the pathogen or whatever. And that, you know, that that basic concept is I mean, he created a cure for syphilis. But that basic concept is like that is basically what a drug is now. I mean, that's how we think Mm. about it. So I think that's just that's just pretty cool. He's like a pretty well-known guy, not an incredibly well-known guy. So you're saying people kind of before this time, well, they must have known that poisons existed, but maybe they didn't have this idea where that, oh, you can just like keep playing with chemicals, keep trying lots of different chemicals until you find one that binds to and happens to be toxic to the very specific tiny bacteria that that you want to get rid of. Well, the the idea of delivering the toxin to specific things in the body instead of just using a toxin to kill the person, I think was probably mostly mostly his idea. And now, of course, a lot of a lot of these drugs, I mean, they're not toxins, they're just like blocking things. But it's still, you know, I mean, the whole idea of like, you're targeting a particular molecule, you're trying to bind to that thing by by putting it into the body. You know, I don't think that was that that was not what people were doing with poisons. People were like, this thing will screw you up, it'll kill you. I don't care how. Yeah. Okay, what's another one? I mean, there was you've probably I would be kind of surprised if you've never Facebooked about this, but I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. Porphyry or Porphyry was an ancient Greek. There's a lot of famous ancient Greeks. We, we celebrate them a lot. This person was an advocate of vegetarianism on spiritual and ethical grounds, wrote a treatise called On Abstinence from Animal Food, 
you know, still get cited in vegetarian literature. I don't know. Like, I've, I've personally, I mean, maybe I think that person is more impressive than Aristotle. Um, I'm not an Aristotle <laughs> expert, but, um, you know, that, that was someone I was glad to learn about that I, I had never heard of them. Yeah, I mean, I'd obviously heard of uh, Pythagoras was famously uh, an early vegetarian. I think I think he probably advocated vegetarianism as as well. I actually I've never never heard of Porphyry, but you mentioning this inspired me to go and go and uh, have a skim of his uh, of his essay on abstinence from animal food. And yeah, it, it, it was a little bit hard to follow because he talks so much about justice and all these moral philosophy concepts that I think must have been really popular among the ancient Greeks or like a particular conception of justice and spirituality that that I don't really share. But there were some parts that were definitely recognizable as as like uh, similar to, to modern arguments where it was like some people say or some people respond to me or when I advocate vegetarianism and they're like, but aren't plants conscious as well? And aren't they living? Like, shouldn't shouldn't we not eat them? And he's like, <laughs> no, obviously animals are higher on the hierarchy of consciousness. Wow. And so we should like eat the things that are like that are the least damaging spiritually to consume and and then he's like and then some people are like but it is in the nature of humans and like other animals to eat one another and this shows that it's that it's morally justified and then he's like but surely it's also in the nature of a crocodile to consume a human being but we don't therefore say that it's like good when crocodiles eat human beings so this is like a shoddy argument like (laughs) it's like it's both bad when crocodiles eat people and it's bad when people eat eat animals so these these yeah this this like really does remind me of kind of modern modern vegetarianism uh, i mean could have been like the first ea it seems possible you know or just (laughs) you know it seems seems pretty impressive to me i mean it is all infused with this spirituality and and teleology like arguments about about the nature of of things which is a little bit distant but yeah no i mean maybe we should find some more writing and then try to make try to make better sense of it because i'm not sure the translation i was reading was 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 absolutely tops yeah it's probably not the stuff that's had the most effort going to translations yeah so um what's another one yeah i mean i i don't know i think like metallurgy is something i wish i understood better just because I had a lot of trouble just finding like a whole coherent narrative of what happened. But I mean, metal seems like a really big deal. It's just like a really huge part of the story of how how technology has improved and how human has gotten the ability to do all kinds of things. And, you know, it's just uh, it was even kind of just a little mind blowing to me that just that it was discovered as early as it was. It's like you have to do this kind of involved process where you have to heat up these rocks very hot and then you have to take what falls out of them. And I think improvements in metal are a big deal and understanding how they came about. Probably a lot of the improvements in metal did not come about through this very scientific process. It was probably just a lot of messing around, but it was a huge, huge thing and happened a lot faster in some periods than other periods. So that's a story I wish I knew better. Um, You know, maybe like something like the Roots of Progress blog will cover it better at some point. I know that while I was doing this, I was often, you know, kind of just like talking to my wife, Daniela, and just talking about how interested I was in like, wish I knew more about metal and cement and how we came up with cement. And she she hated this. She was just, she still makes fun of me to this day. She'll just be like, don't start talking about cement. Like, you know, (laughs) cement's a big deal. Her go-to way of making fun of me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What's another one? Yeah. Al-Hazan is, is an Islamic scholar from the early 11th century who intensively studied how curved glass lenses bend light and had this like very mathematical rigorous study of it. I don't know, like I wasn't able to really nail it down, but I could imagine, you know, spectacles are believed to have been developed or to have reached Europe in the 1200s. So it really could have been a key for that. And then in addition, you know, microscopes and telescopes, you could think of those as being really, really central to the scientific revolution. So, you know, we think of the scientific revolution as starting in the 1500s, and that's probably roughly right in spirit. But there were these kind of bursts of science earlier, and they weren't all in the West. And, you know, that person seems like they probably belong on some list of people who just had like unbelievably important, you know, scientific rigorous discoveries that really laid the groundwork for science. Just, you know, bending glass and moving light around turned out to be an enormous deal. Yeah. Is there any kind of 
common thread or cause maybe uh, between all of these things that you've been listing that you think are like important topics in history that haven't been studied enough or don't, don't get talked enough about? Yeah, the common thread is human empowerment. So this is this is kind of how I organized my summary and and why my summary has different emphases from a history textbook and it's why it's not a history textbook is that, you know, I think normally when you study history, it's like the idea is like, here's a list of stuff that happened and this thing happened and that thing happened and there was this war and there was that war. But it's like there's no there's no underlying sense that throughout there was this kind of underlying factor that was changing in a predictable way. And I was looking for, you know, I believe that over the course of history, and it would be kind of weird if it weren't this way, that human empowerment has gone up because as each year goes by, there's more and more technology. There's more and more like people around and there's more. It just seems like our our as a, as a species, our ability to do what we want to do has gone up. And that is not necessarily a good thing. It could be a good thing or a bad thing. I think there were long periods where empowerment was going up and quality of life was not going up. Agriculture could even be a time when empowerment went up and quality of life went down. But the list of things that humans can do, they're sort of like powers over the environment. Those have been going up generally, you know, pretty, pretty monotonically, I would think. And, And it's interesting to just kind of reflect on like, what were the big moments that caused empowerment to go up faster and more? What were the, you know, the periods during which it was accelerating? And what was the impact of that? Was empowerment, human empowerment, generally a force for good or for bad? I think this is kind of relevant when I look to the future. And I think, well, if we if we created digital people, would that be good or bad? Because that would be a giant burst of empowerment that would give us the ability to do all kinds of things we couldn't do before. And so can we get any clues from the past and say, well, when we get empowered, do we just start shooting ourselves in the foot and making things worse or treating each other badly? Or do we start making things better? And so so that that is the theme. And so basically everything in this summary is about, you know, when did humans get more empowered, especially fast? And what happened as a result of that? And what happened to quality of life? And so there's, you know, there's a lot of attention. It's like when you do it this way, this guy, Alhazen, is a huge deal. Just like, man, lenses. That is a big, yeah. that gave us microscopes, telescopes, and spectacles. Wow. And then like William of Orange is just like, who cares? Like, you know, a lot of wars. Just like, all right, some people in charge, other people in charge, whatever. And so that was the lens I took to this thing for better or worse. Yeah. I'm not sure whether I can connect this story with, with the rest, but it is, it is something something from history uh, that, that I was interested to learn recently. And we're very deep in this conversation, so I'm just going to talk about the things that I find interesting. Oh, yeah, go for it. I was listening to this to this history of India, a uh, long, long series of lectures, like 20 or 30 hours. And anyway, got to the 18th century, 19th century, when the English East India Company was like initially creating, you know, trading ports on the coast in India, and then over time started just invading parts of India, basically, and playing off local princes against one another in order to just take over and govern like a government more and more parts of India. Anyway, I knew that this had happened. I was very interested to hear that there were lots of people in England who were kind of outraged by this. There were people in Parliament who were like, hmm. "What? What? The, what the fuck is this? We, 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 this is like a this is a company. This is a corporation that was set up to make yeah. money trading spices." And okay, we were happy with them having like trading ports on the coast of India because that just was a place where we could come and like sell things to Indians and then and then we'll buy stuff and and we'll, and we'll make bank and that's totally fine. But why? It's totally ridiculous to have parts of India being governed by a corporation that is headquartered in London. Um, yeah. and and people, and people in parliament kept trying to stop this from happening. I think ultimately they lost the argument perhaps because the, the East India Company became like unfathomably rich through, through all of this exploitation and all of this trading of things back and forward from, from Europe to, to Asia. Anyway, I'm always interested in hearing stories like this. And I guess it connects with the porphyry saying that vegetarianism was, was good like thousands of years ago. 
that often when people are condemning folks from the from the past for having done things that are viewed as atrocities today, people say you have to judge them by the standards of the time. And I often think even on its own terms, this is, this is an overstated argument because you can almost always find people at the time who were saying that the thing that was happening was bad. And very likely the people who were doing it or advocating for it or defending it would have heard these arguments and actively rejected them. And I think that makes it a lot less defensible. If there was you know, an active group of people in England saying, all of this colonialism is an outrage. It's like totally ridiculous to have India governed from from London and we shouldn't be exploiting these people to take their money. <laughs> then it's like the argument has been put and people who didn't accept that, they're to some degree morally on the hook for failing to failing to see that that was the that, that was the correct move. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think there's there's a lot. I mean, you can extend that to a lot of things like from from U.S. history where people were, you know, there were ongoing debates for sure at, at, at lots of points about a lot of the things that people point to and say, well, that was just part of the time with slavery and such. Yeah. That, yeah I mean, I think it's it's pretty fair to take a lot of that behavior and just say that was that was not OK. And we're not going to we're not going to give people a pass for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go look, uh, look at more stuff on this English East India Company thing. I, I, I hope I haven't misrepresented stuff because these lectures refer to there being some group in England, at least, and, and some opponents in Parliament. But uh, I need to go and find, a, find out how, how big they were and, and I guess also how they, how they ended up losing, at least until, at least until the, the later 19th century. Are there any other interesting episodes from, from history uh, before we move on? I mean, there's there's tons. I mean, you know, another I, I, I'm kind of naming some of the most that, that struck me as the most random that I'd never heard of. There were others that everyone's heard of, but I thought were an even bigger deal than people think. But I'll just I'll just mention the Tanzimat, which is the, you know, in the mid 19th century, just this series of reforms in the Ottoman Empire. They abolished the slave trade. They declared political equality of all religions. They decriminalized homosexuality. I wish I knew more about this. I mean, that was a that was a real they were ahead of the curve in the Ottoman Empire there. Yeah, that, that's amazing. I guess that maybe makes more sense of how they really kind of jumped forward into the modern world when they became Turkey under 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 Ataturk. Yeah, it, it could it could be connected. That was not under Ataturk. That was much before him. A lot of this was me just seeing these like very high level trends and being like, oh, what's that? What's that? What's that? And not, you know, never, never really digging in as much as I wish I had time to. But it could be. Yeah. Okay, enough Holden and Rob talking about stuff from history they they, they know very little about. <laughs> Let, let's just move on and talk about other non-history things that we don't know very much about. Um, yeah, a, a, any other things that you're uh, planning on planning on writing about? Yeah, so um, so there's going to be that uh, the the series I talked about. I am going to write some about you know what I call applied epistemology, which is just like in, instead of instead of stuff like well, what is the definition of knowledge? Applied epistemology is like, hey, I'm sitting here in this world where like a lot of people are saying things. And I don't know who to believe and like, how do I decide? And so one of the things I'm going to write about is the the Bayesian mindset, which is uh, something that I think a lot of us do in, in this community, which is you you think of things in terms of probabilities and values and you try to separate probabilities and values and you try to be explicit about them and you try to run explicit expected value calculations. And I think this is a very cool thing to be doing. I think it could be you know, more acknowledged and named and described and examined in terms of the pros and cons, because it's it's a practice. It's a set of practices. It's a set of psychological tricks. It's uh, it's got pros and cons in terms of how it plays with human psychology when you're writing down probabilities and values that makes you think certain ways and do certain things. And it's not, you know, when we talk about what's good about this, it's it's mostly not that there's various theorems about expected utility maximization. Those are, to me, very tangential or, or relevant, but not not the only thing going on. So, you know, I'm going to write about things like that. You know, how far do you take self-skepticism? So, you know, what do I do about the fact that I that I could be wrong about everything? And how far do I take that? And, you know, at what point do I say, hey, it wouldn't be productive for me to just say, well, you know, half the country thinks X, so I better think X, too. I mean, you know, where do you stop on the self-skepticism train? Um yeah, so that's something I'm going to write about relatedly, just some some of the methods that I've picked up over the years for just like digging in on problems and deciding, 
you know, how much to research a question before reaching a conclusion on it and how to research it. And then, you know, I, I'm going to write a little bit about utopia and why why it seems that, you know, we talked about this, I think, on our last podcast. Why yeah, we it seems did, that we did. So, so little excitement about utopia and what that means and whether that means the whole idea of utopia is futile or not. And, you know, why it's so hard to imagine one that seems appealing. And then finally, I do I do probably want to do kind of extensive series on this thing that I haven't really come up with it with a name for yet. And I and I hope to by then I'll call it for now kind of like ambitiously impartial ethics or something, which is, you know, so a lot of people in the EA community. I mean, we we tend to call it utilitarianism, but I think there's more to it than that. I think it's thicker than that. I think people in the EA community have this kind of vision of a particular approach to ethics that says, we're going to draw a bright line between moral patients and non-moral patients. We're going to decide, you know, fundamentally, we're going to get to the root of the truth of what counts as a person and what doesn't count as a person. And then we're going to treat all persons equally. And that's that's where a lot of the weird stuff in effective altruism comes from, where it's like, well, maybe the line includes insects. And so then we should think about insect suffering as a major issue. Maybe the line includes factory farmed animals. Maybe the line includes, you know, future digital people. When I say maybe, I tend to usually think that it, you know, could or should um, or at least like maybe should, you know. And so that is kind of a strain of thinking in the EA community that is not it's not just about being utilitarian. It's about having this very ambitious vision of widening the moral circle as far as it could possibly theoretically go. And therefore sort of being in this space where you've immunized yourself against being a moral monster by the standards of some future advanced civilization. So I think, you know, (laughs) one way of thinking of this is like, is there an ethics we could come up with where we've minimized our odds that future people will think that we were jerks? (laughs) Um, you know, because, because past people sure look like jerks a lot of the time, you know, because they were there, for example, they, they were, they were treating people badly who we now think are real people who should have been treated well, but who are we treated badly, who we think should be treated differently in the future. So there is this strain of thinking, but I don't feel like it's ever been articulated in one place. Cause again, it's not just utilitarianism. And I also think there's major weaknesses with the strain of thinking. And I think there's major ways in which it doesn't work. And a lot of what people are trying to do, it has to stop somewhere. And I think it has to stop somewhere different and less satisfying than where I think a lot of EAs imagine it's going to stop. And so I originally started this series as me trying to explain what's wrong with this approach to ethics, even though a lot of a big part of myself endorses it. And I ended up just feeling that I had to put a lot of work into articulating in the first place because it's kind of floating around in the water and it hasn't been written down and stuff that's floating around in the water of avant-garde and never written down is going to be a major, a major thing that I'm writing about. Yeah. Is it possible to give a flavor of why you think taking this to to its logical extreme isn't going to be quite as satisfying as it as it seems like it like it should be setting out? Yeah, I think I think you run into a number of problems when you try to make the moral circle just like include quote unquote everyone. So we we all know that the moral circle can't include like literally every physical process because like okay, our tables, moral patients, what do they even want? And if I start considering every physical process a moral patient, then for every person I help, I'm hurting another person because you could just construct the processes differently in your head. So it has to stop somewhere. And then it's like, how do you draw that line? And I think, you know, a lot of people want to draw the line based on something like consciousness or sentience. Like, does, does something have an inner experience? And I think there's some problems with that. One problem with it is like, when you draw the line that way, you run right into a lot of infinite ethics problems and related problems that are just, you know, if we have this objective measure and there's there's no limit to how many of something there can be, 
you run into a lot of just like weird moral quandaries that can kind of knock the teeth out of utilitarianism and, and make it stop working or make you have to choose something something else weird to believe. And then, you know, I think another problem is that I, I feel like it's just this whole idea of consciousness and sentience. I feel like effective altruists are just taking a lot of their uncertainties and just loading them into this concept and then being comfortable with the fact that they don't understand what this concept is at all. And I suspect, and I, it's only a suspicion, and I'll try and explain the suspicion, help people understand why I have it, but I can't prove it and it might be wrong. I suspect that when we finally get around to deconstructing consciousness, we will be disappointed. We will feel this is not making us feel the level of satisfaction we expected to feel about how to decide whom to care about. That when you, you know, we've been saying, oh, well, is this thing conscious? Is that thing conscious? That's we're, we're loading a lot of who do we care about onto this idea of consciousness that we haven't really looked at. And if we ever do figure out what consciousness is, I suspect we'll look at it and we'll say, you know, I don't feel great making that the center of my morality. I may need something else. Yeah. I've got a lot of thoughts on that, but this is the grab bag question section. So we'll, we'll have to solve the hard <laughs> problem of consciousness maybe in, a, in, in your third appearance on the show. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. What's, what's, what's the last one? Well, the, the, the only other thing is that this is, this is almost more of a warning or a disclaimer or a buyer beware, but there's going to be a lot of random nonsense on my blog. Um, and so it's just <laughs> good to know that. I, I, I like to share, like for years, I've had this private email list and I just take links that I think are cool or interesting. And I just share them because then I have a record of them and I feel like I did something with them. And it's, it's a lot of times they're old. Like I'm not, I'm not a person who's like, Hey, this thing just coming out. I'll be the first person to tell you about it. And some of them are about sports. And so, you know, you got to have a quick archive finger on your, on your email if you're going to subscribe. But a, a general theme that I've noticed when, when I've been writing this stuff is that I write a ton about how you can't trust anything you read and, you know, about how academic social science, the methods don't hold up and stuff doesn't really work. And a lot of the things people say are not really supported. And even when someone debunks someone, a lot of times the debunking is wrong and the debunking of the debunking is wrong. And so we're, we're in a world of a huge amount of claims and hypotheses and information and a really, I, I think, a much lower reliability quotient than most people imagine. Yeah. What does that imply? I mean, it's a very interesting one that because it's like, I agree with that. But then I'm like, it's kind of fun to be in the thick of it and to like, take it somewhat more seriously than, than perhaps any of these claims deserve. And like, what else are you going to do? Uh, it's like, you, you could what caveat else? everything with, you could caveat everything is over like, and I don't know shit. And this is probably like wrong. And, and I, I could yeah. link to every link I could link to, I could say, this is probably not that reliable. But it's like, maybe it all just cancels out. I don't, I don't really think it does. I think you have, <laughs> I think, I think you live your life a very different way. I mean, yeah, this is this is a bit of an obsession for me. I mean, even even my sports posts are somehow about this. It's somehow about like, well, because you can understand sports really well, you can see that all the methods we use in academia just spit out garbage when you apply them to something you actually understand. And I, I don't know. I, I think I have a higher bar for believing things than most people. I just, you know, I just look at everything and I'm just like, I don't know, maybe. I think that changes how I live my life in a big way. I just like I just ignore most stuff. And I have to make really selective, deliberate decisions about what stuff seems like it might be true if I looked into it and would be really important if it were true and is worth my time to look into. And so I feel like I engage with many fewer claims than most people and think about way fewer things than most people and go way deeper on the things I do think about. And that's a very different style of living my life that I, I, it seems different to me. Yeah. OK, so in as much as you think 
each piece of evidence is less reliable. In order to really get to grips with a question, you would have to read more about it and then yeah. like find some way to properly integrate all of these different pieces of evidence because reading one article is probably just quite quite misleading. And then that's that's causing you to narrow your focus somewhat onto a, onto a smaller number of things because you want to understand them properly rather than just be kind of drifting about in a sea of information on all topics. Exactly. I, I basically I basically consider most claims just false by default, and I need to pick a few that might be true that I'm going to really try to understand. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair enough. Okay, if that's all the blog posts, what's something important that you've learned from the COVID-19 experience? I mean, you know, there's a lot that's potentially learnable from COVID. It's really funny. So so here's here's something I would like to learn, and then I'll get to something I think I, I sort of have learned or have thought about differently. Something I would like to learn is just who actually was right ahead of other people. Because yeah. there's a lot of claims floating around. Like there's a lot of people taking victory laps. And saying, you know, well, this person was right and we should listen to them and this community was right and we should listen to them. And it's like, honestly, like a lot of people. So I love the EA community and and but a lot of people will say, well, the EA community or the rationalist community really nailed COVID. And as their support, as their footnote, they'll link to the Scott Aronson post. And the Scott Aronson post gives a long list of names. And he says, these people were right. You should listen to them. But he does not give citations. He does not give links. And I went and I found I went through these names. Half of them had not said anything about COVID that I was able to find anywhere. You know, it, it just I, I think he was giving a an emotional impression, this general kind of person. It was not a research project that he was publishing. And a lot of those people didn't say anything about COVID. And, and I think I really wish that someone would actually try to lay this out and say, OK, what was Rob saying? What was, you know, <laughs> what was Les Wrong saying? There was something like this on Les Wrong specifically. At the same time, what was the Trump administration saying? Because sometimes they actually quite early did say some quite alarmist things. Uh, there's another group. Oh, yeah. What was like what was like nerdy Twitter saying? Because I, I generally have an impression that nerdy Twitter did at least my current impression could be wrong. I think nerdy Twitter probably did at least as well as the rationalist in the communities and probably better. It's a little hard to define nerdy Twitter. And so, what's, you have to yeah, what's nerdy it. Twitter? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I it's, it's like it's like cool epidemiologists who tweet. I don't know when I think of nerdy Twitter, I literally. So the way that I engage with Twitter is I basically follow like five people and then I see who they follow. And I think nerdy Twitter, I basically define as people Alexander retweets or follows. Um, So, you know, but it's but a lot of it is not EA and rationalist. And and I think it's people who did quite well. So so it's like, you know, let's 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 line it up. Trump administration, various definitions of nerdy Twitter, WHO, CDC. I think they're going to look terrible you know, and, and, and the various groups and say, who said what, when, and how valuable was that? And how correct did that look in hindsight? That would be awesome. Cause I think, I think we're missing, I do have the impression that the CDC and WHO did, did really horribly. And that the EA and rationalist community did at least a lot better than those agencies. And that nerdy Twitter did a lot better than those agencies, but I, yeah, the granularity. I mean, I think, I think a lot of claims are running around that I, I would like to, I would like to nail down a little bit better. Yeah, no, I, I would, I would absolutely love to see that studied more systematically. It's, it's going to be, well, there's going to be a big problem that, you know, for example, that you might think, did this particular academic subdiscipline do well? And, yeah. and it could have been the case that like 90% of people in that academic discipline were ahead of the curve and kind of had a decent idea what was going on. But it wouldn't then shock me if kind of the 10% most vocal or the 10% most retweeted on Twitter are like completely non-representative and might have had a like more politically interesting, unusual view. And you're totally going to identify those people much more because uh, people saying something that's wrong is often far more interesting at the time. Yeah. I'm I'm mostly interested in public statements, like in what what people were out there saying, getting attention for um, more than like what people would have said in an opinion poll, because I don't think it matters all that much what people would have said in an opinion poll. 
Yeah, there's a very, I mean, kind of cross-cutting question here is, should we learn to put more weight on authorities and people with traditional credentials? Or should we learn more to trust people who are like, you know, super forecasters who don't have particular domain experience, or like people who seem like they're really on it intuitively, and and, and what they're saying makes sense to you? It's a really difficult one. I, I think my, my impression is that the non-domain experts did surprisingly well, but I think that might yep. be because I have an extremely selected narrow group of non-domain experts. And if I if I chose like non-domain experts at random, then I'd find it was just absolutely oh, yeah. garbage. I mean, I think in general, the non-domain experts did horribly if you, if you put yeah. them all in one group together. But I think the, you know, I think if you're listening to the right non-domain experts, then they did well. <laughs> and so it's a matter of, you know, you want to learn general lessons about what kinds of people, but it's a little bit more nuanced than domain experts versus non. But, you know, but I would, I mean, look, I mean, I, I would generally say that, like, it was a big update toward listening to Rob Wiblin over listening to the CDC. I think it's hard <laughs> to argue with that. <laughs> Thanks, Holden. You say the sweetest things. Okay, yeah. Anything else you've learned from, from COVID or should we move on? Well, a weird, a weird thing that I haven't seen people reflecting on all that much, as far as I can tell, is that I, I think the thing that is rough is that people who were right and who had a lot of foresight had a lot of trouble being helpful. And when I think about, you know, the, the translation of being ahead of the curve on what you know to actually helping things go better looked pretty rough to me. And when I think about who helped the most, you know, I actually like look at people, you know, for example, the One Day Sooner founder, you know, maybe maybe Thomas Pueyo, people who kind of instead of being most remarkable for the fact that they knew COVID was going to be a thing before other people did, they actually like found out at the same time as everyone else. But what they did was they jumped into the fray then and they really threw themselves into something with all the energy they had. And so I, I kind of feel like effort beat foresight is like a thing that I thing that I think might be true. Again, I'd like to nail this down. I don't know if this is true, but it makes me nervous and it makes me think about because I have a bit seen EAs and rationalists sort of taking victory laps. And I think it's kind of weirdly like it worries me a little to take a victory lap when you didn't necessarily help things go much better, because I think our goal with with the most important century and with AI is for things to go better. Our goal is not to say, haha, we told you we saw it coming. And to the extent those two can come apart, I think that's worth being very nervous about. I think it's I think it's worth being nervous that we as a community are really onto something with all this AI and existential risk stuff. And yet that we have so much more work to do to find a way to translate that into having a positive impact, or even maybe the best way to have a positive impact isn't even going to lean on the foresight as much as we kind of like would like it to, or wish it would, or think it would be nice for it to like, you know, maybe, maybe we should just try to have fewer buffoons in government and that was the right answer. And that's what we should focus on. And that's the right thing. And that's, what's going to help. And we didn't have to have insights about AI in order to get there. And so that kind of is too bad for our vanity, but maybe that's where we are. So it's, it's something I've been thinking about a little bit. Cause I think the analogy is interesting. It's like, there was this huge thing coming. Some people saw it coming earlier than others. It turned out to be just as huge as they said, but I don't know that they were the most helpful people. And that's an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. I guess there's a broader alarming thing, which is lots of people, including you and me, in fact, most people who are just broadly informed about the issue knew that pandemics could be a very serious problem and that we should be doing more to prep for it. And yeah. as, a, as a group of millions, tens of millions of people, we did not manage to make that happen ahead of time, at least not, not, not to the sufficient degree. So that's an example where as a society, there was like almost a consensus among informed people <laughs> that we should be solving this problem. And then we kind of just let it happen. I want to defend a little bit the people who were saying, you know, in late January or early February that this was likely to become a global pandemic when I think significant other public authorities were playing playing down the risk. So I think 
folks then were saying, you know, we should be like analyzing exactly what policy are we going to do when this becomes a massive pandemic in this country. And we should be stockpiling, you know, hand sanitizer. We should be increasing manufacturing of masks. We should be figuring out how we're going to do work remotely so that we can adjust for all of this stuff. And it's true, mostly those people weren't super listened to, but it seems a little bit unfair to say <laughs> these people had like, I mean, these people were saying we should get like a month ahead of this. And if you remember, like March and April was just like absolutely chaos because we had sat on our hands for so long rather than actually figuring out what the policy response should be and like doing the obvious preparation. Yeah, I, I don't know. I agree, like some people who didn't have particular foresight, but then had better ideas once things became obvious. That's, that's also an incredibly useful skill. Like it's not it's not only about being a, ahead of the curve and seeing what's about to happen, but also knowing what, what is actually worth doing. Well, I don't even I don't know about the ideas. I mean, I think it was it was people who just had a lot of time. I kind of just feel like I would trade I would trade foresight for just like effort, you know, like it was people people who threw themselves into something and really spent a lot of time on it, you know, I think are among the people who I think who I think helped a lot. You know, I think it, yeah, it would have been good to be thinking about policy earlier. I wish people had listened and had thought about policy earlier. That's totally true. I kind of like a little, little bit of me is just like, look, I was one of the, I was one of the people who stocked up on hand sanitizer and stuff like that. And like, that didn't help at all. And, and I think I, you know, I think I just kind of, <laughs> I did hear a bunch of people just being like, what, what about Man. the masks? That might've helped. Uh, no, I mean, do the mask. Okay. Yeah. That's a shame. Yeah. I don't, I don't, it, it just, by the time people were into masks there, you could get masks. I mean, you know, they yeah. were, they were expensive for a little while. So I, I don't know. Like I, I just, maybe, maybe I'm just reacting to the victory laps and maybe I'm overreacting a little <laughs> bit, but, um, I, I do worry sometimes we're very cerebral, intellectually nerdy people in this community. And I do worry sometimes that we, we look at whether we were right, not at whether we helped. And, you know, mm. p- some people are very excited. We're very excited. They were like, I bought boxes of pasta and you didn't. And it's like, yeah, and that didn't matter. So, <laughs> and let's think yeah. about what mattered and look for the patterns in that. Totally, totally, yeah. I guess uh, We have yeah, so much, to... we still have that hand sanitizer. We have like this unbelievable yeah. amount of hand sanitizer sitting in our house. I don't think we ever used a drop. Yeah, we we had a surplus of hand sanitizer as well. Uh, I guess, yeah, didn't, didn't turn out to work out. But we were right, Holden. We, we, we could have been right. It could have helped. It could have been. <laughs> It could have been um, really hard to get hand sanitizer forever and really important to have it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all, all the stuff that actually did matter. Yeah, so Thomas, Porio, and I guess me and, and some other bloggers were, were kind of on board with uh, we need to cancel stuff and like start staying at, at home. Maybe like only days or possibly a week before it seemed like every, everyone got there. Which is good. Definitely good. But I was I was actually about to say, you know, we haven't heard the last word on whether that was actually worth it from a cost benefit point of view. We're actually not Fair. gonna know until we like see well how many lives actually were saved and like what were the what were the hidden costs of this. Because obviously the costs were enormous. And although you know, at the time, I thought that was like the right way to go because it preserved option value. I don't think it's it's, it's completely obvious. I exposed that it was worth the cost relative to some to some other approach. So I'm going to be very interested to see someone try to do a cohesive cost yeah. benefit analysis on the lockdowns. Yeah, interesting. really early in the pandemic, I made a, I made this spreadsheet analysis about when to be really careful, and I concluded that it wasn't time yet. And I think we were like we were like probably a few days ahead of like San Francisco policy, but we were like. I think like one week behind whatever we knew was doing, we were just like, we were chilling out. And then we looked back (laughs) on that decision and we were like, we like traveled. We like had fun. We went to like another city and had a lot of fun. And we were like, that was our last chance to have fun. And that was absolutely the highlight of 2020. Like that was like, we had a great weekend in another city. Like we spent the rest of the year sitting in our house. And so we were like, man, that was a huge win. Like locking down a week later, like just our house, just, just our household, like me, me, my wife and her her mom. You you were a hero of the pandemic, Holden, going to that party. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We we had fun. We got to see friends, took walks with people. Yeah. Yeah. Went out drinking. Yeah. 
My memory is just the opposite. I, I remember I went to a, to a house party on, on the 9th of March. And at the time I was like, this is a real bad idea. We, we, should, we shouldn't be going to this house party. But the social pressure from the fact that we yeah, agreed to go was too great. And so I went anyway. And in retrospect, I was like, this was crazy. Like one or 2% of the whole population had COVID. Like this could have been an absolute disaster. Uh, obviously, but, that like, was that- your, but, but, but it was pretty knowable that the risk was not that high and the cost benefit didn't say to do it. And like, that was the last house party you went to for like a year. So good job. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. All right. Well, we have the rest of our lives to relitigate March, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, March, exactly. March 2020. So, so let's push on. The point is, it's it's hard. It's hard to really, really get this stuff right, even when you you get it impressively right compared to other people. And that is something I worry about for long termism. And I think that is a reason that you know it's not so crazy to be to be focused on global health and well being if you've got better stuff to do there. So that's that's me yeah. shoehorning a moral in there. <laughs> Predicting <laughs> things isn't enough. Yeah. What are a couple of interesting or notable things that you've gotten wrong over the, over the last couple of years? Sure. So, I mean, I think I think we made some big mistakes on hiring and management. I think we were at a stage at one point where our work was very poorly scoped and we just, you know, on the long term side, we were kind of improvising and figuring stuff out as we went. And we, you know, we just hired too aggressively at that time. And that's just a you know, I think that's a that's a common mistake organizations make. And I think it's an especially easy one in these kind of very intellectually confusing areas where it's just you've been at something for years. You feel like you should know what you're doing. You wish you knew what you were doing. You want to <laughs> feel like you know what you're doing. Um, you hire and then, you you know, you have you're, you're trying to give people guidance and support. And it's too hard to do because you don't know what you're doing. So um, I think that's something I've been I've been thinking about a lot. And, you know, I often am advising organizations to just like be a little more conservative with the hiring. And a lot of times that, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to make the case because until, until you've seen how it plays out, it always feels like, well, isn't it always better to just like do more? And, you know, I think, I think it not always, like, I think, I think a lot of times you want to make sure you've built a really good prototype widget or two before you build a widget factory and jumping to the factory when you still have a vague idea of what the widget is. I mean, that would, that would be the analogy I'd use. So that's something. I think, you know, in general, I'm feeling pretty fired up about this idea that we could be in the most important century. And that's something that has been a priority for us for years, for sure. But, you know, thinking about it now, I kind of wish I'd gotten to this headspace a little faster somehow and moved a little more boldly in line with that hypothesis. I've, I've been dividing my time between a lot of things and, you know, and really really just mixed in a lot of directions. And, and I think focus is good and having like a firm conviction in something that you want to bet on that other people aren't and really going all the way in on it, it would, would be a good thing for us to do more of. And, and probably we could have done that earlier. Yeah. Were there any interesting emotional or social barriers maybe to, to fully, fully embracing that, that what you uh, earlier than you did? You know, I mean, for me, I've spent my whole life in a state where I just I don't like taking big high stakes actions on something until I feel I've done my homework. I think it's it's just healthier. And I'm really uncomfortable with and I, I think it is a bad dynamic for the EA community to be, you know, pushing people to really act on things, you know, like this, this thing could happen this century. And then someone says, OK, and why do you believe that? And it's like, I don't know, go talk to some people. But, you know, that's how I've always been. And so for me, like, having gotten to the point where we've done these worldview write-ups and then I've written up the kind of summary of the whole thing and the, this most important century series and feel like I've stared at it and sat with it and we've done what we can to find the holes in it. It's very psychologically important to me to feel that I've done that. And then I also think like having the ability to focus my time on it is important to me too. And, you know, I do know people who who can get to these things before they've done the amount of homework that I've done. Now, to be fair, you know, I think that those people tend to predict I'll never get there. And I think that turns out to be false because they're imagining they're imagining that I don't have like an evolving 
you know, an evolving picture of what level of rigor is necessary and what and, and a flexibility about how much investigation to do. You know, they're evolving that I'm going to hold everything to the give well standard. But I think, you know, there probably is a way to get there faster. I, I don't really know because I I have a tough time wishing generally that I had just embraced everything the first time it sounded right to me. I don't think that would have worked out well for me either. But I think there's probably some way. Yeah. So, yeah. Was, was there a third thing that uh, you thought you'd, uh, you'd gotten wrong over the last couple of years? You know, I wrote a wrote a post a while ago called Expert versus Broad Philanthropy. It's talking about the contrast between, you know, do you want to have a specialist who works on one cause, lives and breeds that cause, knows everyone in the cause, and they lead your work in that cause? Or do you want to have a generalist who maybe works in five causes and they only fund the very best stuff they see and they don't know as much? And I guessed at the time, I said, expert philanthropy seems like it's got to be better. And I think I just changed my mind on that one. I, I don't think it's like clear cut. And I think we want to do a mix. But I feel like our broad philanthropy has done better than I expected it to. And I'm interested in doing more of it. And I think it may be the better model a lot of the time. So I think that's kind of interesting. Was there some benefit to the non-specialist approach that, that you perhaps underestimated? Yeah, I think it's about keeping the bar high. So I think I think the the issue when you, you know, when you hire a specialist is it's like, they're very focused on their cause and you have to figure out what their budget should be. And then they're going to advocate for a bigger budget and then they're going to spend whatever budget they have. And you, you can improve your ROI a lot if you have someone who is like, you know, I'm not interested unless this thing is amazing. And then I do think, you know, I, as as with many things, it's like a lot of the impact comes from the very best grants. A lot of the very best grants are like actually just super obvious. And so, you know, it might be better to be in more causes with a very high bar and a very high amount of like generalist effective altruist mindset so that you're you're just really funding the stuff that's really great and that might be worth some of the costs you get where you you know it's true i mean you're not going to be as knowledgeable and you're going to miss stuff but it's like maybe funding the most obvious stuff the most amazing stuff from several causes is better than you know going deeper on one and then there's another piece of it too that you know, I do. I, I've thought that a really important part of grant making is relationships, because you want you want people to feel comfortable telling you the truth and giving you honest feedback. And a lot of times, in order to do that, you have to be really connected to a field and you have to really know everyone in it. And I think I've kind of evolved on that a bit, just in the sense that I think it's just hopeless for an open philanthropy program officer to really stay in a state where people will be honest with them. And because it's hopeless, you're not gaining as much as I thought you were gaining when you have someone who's really well networked. It's like, you you know, I wish it were different, but um, it's like, I used to think of it as like, our expert is like a, a known person with friends and our broad grant maker is like a weird person in an office that no one understands, but they're both going to be the second one. You have to find a way to have impact anyway. It's kind of a sad conclusion, but. Yeah, uh, you're saying when someone's making big decisions on funding, like even their friends might understandably become reticent to start like criticizing yes. an organization yes. off, on the basis of like a rumor they heard, because now it's like a really significant thing because they could like, you could totally change their funding just because you got something wrong. Exactly. It's just, yeah. The grantmaker, lead grantmaker is just a, they're a powerful figure and people are going to be very careful with them. So the opportunity to get a lot of gossip and scuttlebutt, I mean, it's, it may just not be there or it may be, and there may just need to, there, there need to be other ways to do it. Like a lot of times our, our more junior staff do better at that because they, they aren't as powerful and that could be important. It's interesting. Okay. Totally different topic. What's something you've been working on that isn't related to effective altruism or, you know, 80,000 hours or anything like that? 
I mean, I wouldn't say there's no relationship, but, uh, you know, my wife, Danielle, and I are having a kid soon. I think the, the kid will be here by the time this podcast goes up. So congratulations been preparing for that and thinking about it. And, you know, that's been a project and will be a big project. Yeah. You're excited? I suppose it'd be hard to say that you're, that you're not on, on, on the podcast, but <laughs> I well, imagine you wouldn't, wouldn't be going into it if you weren't. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, I mean, we're both, we're both excited to have a kid. It's not one of us pushing the other. You know, I think, I think I've heard that the first months, I mean, you know, they can be very difficult and not necessarily very rewarding. And we've been trying to prepare for, for those coming months so that they're, you know, they're not worse than they have to be. So I've, I've got some trepidation, obviously, and it's, yeah. it's a big decision, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's certainly excited. Danielle and I, froze embryos before we before we started having the kid i mean we, she's pregnant the, the natural way but we, we we froze embryos and you know that was an interesting experience and i ended up doing a lot of research there too on just like the best way to do that i i learned that the standard clinic approach now seems to be like worse than the old approach so they, they do this thing called icsi which is originally used for infernal males and now they do it for everyone and it, it seems worse it seems worse for the kid if you can avoid it so I, uh, you know, I learned that I learned that um, I, I learned that it's better for both men and women to freeze, whether it's sperm or eggs to do that earlier in life, you're going to yeah. get, you know, better quality gametes. And so I, I wish I had frozen mine earlier. I wish Danielle had frozen hers earlier. And I, any listeners, if you haven't frozen anything, and you might want kids someday, you know, I would encourage you to think about doing it. It's obviously a very different process for men and women. But I think for both, it's a good idea. Yeah. What's a new kind of possible global health and well-being cause area that would like most most excite you? Not necessarily the most impactful, but one that's fun and uh, enthusiasm inducing. Yeah, I mean, I, I the truth is, I just have a lot of trust in that team, and I, I have a lot of sympathy with their mentality, which is just like it's a numbers game. We're we're doing ROI calculations. We want to help the most people for the least money. We don't care what it is. It could be boring. I like the South Asian air quality thing just because it's we I like things that are weird and that people don't normally talk about much. So, yeah, I mean, you know, they're doing global aid advocacy, too, which I think is great. But which is, I, you know, it has less of that feel of like, hey, did you know that maybe yeah. a huge amount of the world's <laughs> disease burden is coming from this pollution in South Asia that, you know, that you never hear about? And it's actually a bigger issue than most of the stuff you do hear about. So I like it when they do stuff like that. I selfishly hope they keep doing it, but I don't really care. They could they could end up deciding that all the money should just go to bed nets and that would be fine and I'd be excited about it. Yeah. Yeah, talking about Danielle again, what do you think of uh, Anthropic? Do you have any comments on a new organization? Yeah, so Anthropic is uh, is a new AI lab and I am excited about it, but I have to temper that or, you know, or not mislead people because, you know, <laughs> Daniela, my wife, is the president of Anthropic and that means that we have equity. And so whatever, you know, don't I, I, I'm about as conflict of partiality with, over at this point in the interview. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, just I, I could disclose all day, but I, I'm as conflict as interesting as I can be with this organization. So the only thing I'll say is that, like, Danielle and I, you know, are are together partly because we share values and life goals. She is a, you know, a person whose goal is to get a positive outcome for humanity from the most important century. That is her genuine goal. She's not there to make money. And I think Anthropic just has a lot of people who have that in common with her, which is part of the reason why she's happy being there, both among their employees and among their investors. So I think that's cool. But I'm not the most objective observer you could ever ask for on this topic. Yeah. All right. This has been a, a very a marathon to recording session episode, but we but we have have reached the end or just about the end. Yeah, I guess as a final question, we've talked about so much so much fun stuff that you've been writing about and learning about and, and doing. Is there anything else <laughs> exciting uh, and something from fun from your life that, uh, that the audience might be interested to hear about? 
Absolutely not. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm co-CEO of Open Philanthropy, and then I've been writing this blog on my personal time and we're preparing to have a kid. So that's it. And I, uh, I haven't really, I haven't been reading. I haven't been like watching TV barely at all. I mean, I don't, yeah, there's nothing else going on for me. You, you now know everything that I've been, that I've been doing. <laughs> nothing no, left. Like, I have been managing like, the exercise barely. I, I'm running this huge team. I'm like writing all this <laughs> blog post. I'm like learning about history. I'm like, <laughs> my wife's pregnant. She's starting up a new organization. The, like, well, how much more do you want? Yeah. Yeah. No, we, we covered it. I, uh, there's, there's nothing else that I do with my time. Nothing, okay. Nothing All right. <laughs> uh, well, well. On that note, yeah. Best of luck with uh, with parenthood, and passed on my best my best wishes to Daniela. I hope I hope things go smoothly, and uh, yeah, l- look Thank forward to, to hearing about it in, in a couple of months' time. Yeah, we're excited, and thanks for having me on. My guest today has been uh, Holden Karnowski. Thanks so much for coming on the Eighty Thousand Hours Podcast, Holden. Good talking. If you've made it all the way to the end of that episode, I just want to draw your attention to the Open Philanthropy Technology Policy Fellowship. Open Philanthropy is looking for applicants for this U.S. Policy Fellowship program, which is focused on high-priority emerging technologies, especially artificial intelligence and biotechnology. Uh, The program is going to go for six to 12 months and offer a bunch of training, mentorship, and help matching with a host organization to try to get a full-time position in the the Washington, D.C. area. You've got until September 15th to apply for that one, and you can find out more on the Open Philanthropy website all by clicking through the link on the blog post associated with this episode. We are also currently hiring a new head of marketing to spread the word about this podcast and all the other services that 80,000 Hours offers. As always, you can stay on top of those opportunities and hundreds of others by regularly checking out our job board at 80,000hours.org slash jobs. If you go there and join our job board newsletter, then you'll get an email uh, each two weeks or so uh, when that board is updated, usually with between 100 and 200 new opportunities. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering is by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts are available on our website and produced by Sophia Davis-Vogel. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.